Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Back to the Bins. I am Scott Gardner. Well, not counting a uh, special unnumbered presentation or two, this is the 37th episode of Back to the Bins, and it represents something of a personal milestone for me. As you may or may not be aware, Back to the Bins began as someone else's brainstorm. My original co-host actually thought the whole thing up and pitched the idea to me, inviting me to fill the role of the old man of the show. Most, if not all, of the format and the loose so-called rules of the show were his idea. When he up and abandoned the show at episode 18, I was literally caught completely off guard, unaware, and unprepared. I'd always assumed he'd loved and been digging the show just as much as I have, but for whatever personal reasons he left, and I had a lot of tough choices to make, the most important of which was whether or not to continue the show. As I said, it was really another person's baby, and when I was given his blessing to continue it or not, I still felt incredibly awkward about the whole thing. Obviously, I ultimately made the decision, a very nervous decision, to keep on keeping on, and the result of that has been the last 18 episodes that you've heard. And judging by the numbers, you know, you guys seem to really dig the show and and be enjoying it. I sincerely thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. And we've been able to grow and expand the listenership well beyond you know what it was at the point that the original co-host left. And it's helped confirm, to my mind anyway, that I guess you guys, you know, I hope you guys really dig what I'm trying to do with this show and that you're enjoying the format. And it's a format that I really wanted to talk to you for a moment before the, the, the show proper starts. You know, as anyone who knows me or, or listens to me for even five minutes knows by now, I'm a very firm believer in the old adage of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And by no means do I consider Back to the Bins broke. I love the show, I love the format, and I love reading and talking about the incredible worlds of you know wonderful, silly, goofy, thrilling, and yeah, sometimes even downright terrible old comic books. That part of the show is never going to change. But with this episode number 37, the first episode of 2010, I did want to make a change. Two changes, as a matter of fact, to the format of the show. The first, and arguably most important, is that I feel the need to truly own the show. You know, despite having now done just as many shows without the original co-host as with, I still sometimes feel almost like the steward of the original idea. Almost slaved to that idea, if you will. While I promise you that the original intent and idea and largely the format of this program will always remain essentially the same, there will be changes and tweaks and additions coming down the pike. Please feel free to comment on these. All feedback, both positive and not so positive, is welcome, desired, and appreciated, as are your ideas and suggestions for the show. I welcome them all. I really, really want to hear them, and I really do take them all into account. The other big change I wanted to make was that as much as I have really enjoyed and and really loved the rotating guest host format the show has had for the last 18 episodes, I never really intended it to be permanent if I could help it. My goal was not only to allow you, the listener, to meet and hear some of my friends in the comics community, but it also served as sort of a half-assed, you know, quote-unquote interview for these folks you know to possibly get the job i was on the prowl for what i felt was the best you know the most knowledgeable most personable most agreeable nicest most professional most internet radio compatible potential new permanent co-host that i might be able to find and so failing all of that 
I've just decided to go ahead and allow Michael Bailey to fill that role instead. So congratulations, Michael, and welcome to permanency on Back to the Bins. I fucking hate you. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to come on here and I was going to be like, Scott, thanks for having me on. The check cleared, right, Scott? I mean, you know, money's in your bank. No, now, no, you can fucking eat me for all I can. (laughs) In all all seriousness, though, uh, I'm very happy to be uh, a permanent part of the show now. You, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this. Back in right before September, right before Dragon Con, as a matter of fact, I get this email. Literally the third email in the week of people going, hey, you know, you want to come on our podcast? And I like going on other podcasts because one of the great things about this arena is that you get to mix it up with other people. You know, it's not an ego. Th- well, okay, it's partially an ego thing <laughs> because I do have something of an ego. But at the same time, it's kind of fun because it challenges you. It breaks you out of your your little format, your mold. And we emailed back and forth, and I think I knew we were going to be friends when I saw your little avatar for Skype. And I said, hey, neat Dr. Occult avatar. (laughs) And you seemed legitimately surprised that I knew who it was. I was, because everybody else, if they commented on it at all, was always like, hey, I like uh, Dick Tracy too. So yeah, I was just thrilled to finally get a response from somebody who knew who the hell Dr. Call even was. And, and we did the show and we had a great time, but I think it was that conversation afterwards where it, 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 uh, it, it, it occurred to both of us that shit, we get, we got a lot in common about this. And then getting to know you over the last couple of months, it became very apparent that as much as we walked down that same path together, there are moments where one of us will say something to the other, and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and I think that makes for the best kind of people getting together to do a show, mm-hmm. is where they're on the same road, but they're not driving the same vehicle to get there. Right. And and sometimes, you know, I want McDonald's. Well, what are you talking about? I need to get a Whopper. But I'm very happy. I'm very excited. I was very touched uh, in the bad place. No, um, I was very touched. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of this came from that, the, you know, when we went to see a Christmas Carol and had dinner at the Cracker Barrel and we realized we both wanted to do certain things with our podcast or start a new podcast and realized, shit, we can't do that. Right. <laughs> There's too much going on right now. So. I don't know. Well, so many I'm of the ideas that we kicked around were already ideas that that I thought would work so well in the in the back to the bins format because the nice thing about this show is that it doesn't really have I mean it's got a very loose format that is totally open I mean that basically the whole idea is let's talk old comics you know which mm-hmm. is what every idea that we bandied back and forth essentially boiled down to in the long run was let's just talk about old comic X and so that you know, I, I don't want people to get all nervous. I don't want them to think, "Oh God, the show is going to change and it's going to be different." You know, I like it just the way it is. You know, I, I I know the fanboy mentality. You know, I have that mentality myself, so I don't want people to to think that it's it's not going to radically change. It's just that you know, we're if anything, it's going to be a little more intense. I think because you know, you and I are 
of a comparable age, we really, really want to delve back, you know, really get back to the bins, you know, really get back into the older stuff, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, and possibly even older than that. So we're really going to refine the approach more than anything. The, the thing about this show that I like, uh, you know, because I went back and I listened to all of the episodes, is that it, it, it's the type of show I like to listen to because it's just talking about random comics and it makes me think about, have I read that? If I read that, do I remember that time period? I mean, there was an episode where you and Alec were talking about the McFarlane Spider-Man books. And I remember that time, but I didn't read the books at the time. But I still had like an, like some kind of connection to that because I remembered it so vividly. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see any reason to come in and say, well, now that you've asked me to be a part of it, we really need to change it. In fact, I think the only change we really made was we pushed back the cutoff date of comics we'll talk about. Right. You know, because I think, didn't we decide on 1995? Yeah. Well, the loose rule of the show had always been, the you know, the comic, to be considered a back issue, they have to be at least five years old. Because I think the original way that number was determined was we figured at the time we got the show started that there weren't any comics-related podcasts that were older than five years old. So we figured anything before that was pretty fair game and had probably not been talked about or, or talked about to any great, you know, depth. And, but, you know, I, I like the idea of, you know, you, you had pitched the idea of about 1995 because if you go to like your average, say, flea market or, uh, or you know, comic shop that has a good like 50 cent bin area, what you're going to find in there is generally stuff from 95 and before. And, and mm-hmm. I like that idea. That, that truly gives it the feel of we're discussing stuff that you might literally go out and just pull out of a 50-cent bin somewhere. That was really at least my feeling of this. That's what I wanted the show to feel like was this is just a grab bag. You know, We, we went to the local 50-cent bin, and this is what we scored today. And for the most part, that's that's going to be true. I mean, I, I would say about probably 80% or better of my collection is largely built off of exactly that kind of thing. You know, whether it was a 50-cent bin or, you know, 50 cents or a dollar at the local flea market or garage sale or Goodwill or whatever. I mean, that's really how I've built my collection. I'm not a guy that has spent a lot of money on single issues. I've spent a shitload of money on comic books but I've gotten them all on the cheap for the most part. I'm of the opinion that you get a large collection in one of four different ways. You inherit it. Mm-hmm. An older brother, a dad, whatever, brings you a couple thousand books, and bam, your collection is started. You just lived long enough to get that many books, and you bought that many books as they were coming out. You just got freaking... You won the lottery and basically just bought everything and didn't <laughs> care. Or... Which as I did, I just bought collections on the cheap. Right. You know, in 1997, I went from having 1,500 books to 8,000 books because two friends sold me their collections mm-hmm. for a very for a song, basically. I mean, it was just, and suddenly, bam! I felt like I'm in the big leagues. 
<laughs> and in the in the twelve years since then, I've basically doubled that number, much to the chagrin of free space in the house. Because <laughs> uh, these things, God, these things take up room. Oh, tell me about oh, it. Oh my God. You know, back when back in '97, it's like I want sixteen thousand, but I want twenty thousand books. And now I'm thinking, God, where am I going to put them? And I'm thinking the logistics and storage and backing and the boxes and how you have to replace the boxes. And ah. I, I never really considered myself to have a whole lot of comics. You know, I mean, I, I always figured, you know, you always it, it's like. Uh, you know, who was it in, in Star Wars said, you know, there's always a bigger fish. That was always my mentality is, oh, there's got to be guys out there with a whole lot more comics than I have. But, you know, it's it's when you buy your first house and you realize that the comic books have to have their own room. <laughs> and that's when you realize that, well, maybe this is a little more than just a, you know, a leisurely, you know, hobby type of thing. But anyway... That will be the sort of fascinating and titillating discussion that we will be having uh, on the show in future. But in the meantime, I'm going to rein us in a little bit. We do actually have a topic for this show, and it's a humdinger. Also, we mm-hmm. have we have a guest for our for this episode. We have a third body that's going to join us. Please welcome Chris Honeywell. Huh? <laughs> oh, hey guys. <laughs> I was just I was just listening closely to what you said, and I caught something about you're going to do a show about being cheap. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Sounds great, man. Well, you are the king of the uh, the garage sale, so. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, that's why I say it sounds. I, hey, I'm not slamming being cheap, man. <laughs> By no means. I remember all your your girlfriends always always complained about how cheap you were. Now that I think about it. Is that what they complained about? Well, if that was what they complained about, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in all honesty, if it's like, he was cheap, it's just like, thank God she didn't say I have a small penis. <laughs> well, that was the <laughs> second Well, I told her I'd kill her parents if she ever told anybody that, so. <laughs> hey, you know what? This is sort of like a crossover show, like Back to the Bins and Two True Freaks. You're like, right, it is. Like, it's- like the comic. It is. It's weird. Oh yeah, you're right. Okay. Well, okay. Now we're, now we're getting titans. into rele- relevancy here. <laughs> oh, that was me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, that was a great segue. Yeah, there I'm you go. Segue. All right. So anyway, what we are tackling tonight—it's a biggie. One of the biggest comic books ever published. Arguably one of the most important comic books ever published. This is. The greatest superhero team-up of all time, the Battle of the Century, Marvel and DC present Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man from 1976. Written by uh, Jerry Conway, drawn by Ross Andrew, inked by Dick Giordano, and uh, quite the big frickin' deal. So how do we want to do this, gentlemen? You just want to dive right into... uh, synopses on this or do we want yeah i say we go i say we plunge right it forward like the comic does sweet all right so we're gonna lead off this book what we're doing because it is a giant you know it's a giant presentation it's rather long um what is this 80 it's 90 pages right yeah 92 pages yeah what we're going to do is we're going to split the book up by the prologues and chapters and one epilogue that are actually... That's how the book is presented. 
So each of us will be handling, you know, tackling a, a different section of the book, and we're going to start off with uh, the splash page and uh, prologue one. And uh, Michael Bailey, take it away. All right, it is winter in Metropolis, uh, which was kind of apropos since this came out in January of 76. And apparently winter is giant robot season <laughs> as a giant robot is busy tearing up a good chunk of the time. Ta- I mean, it's just walking through buildings. And this thing looks awesome, by the way. It, it's, it looks like, uh, like the, the proto-designs of Rom the Space Knight. It does. So... <laughs> Superman flies in to help, and the robot seems rather pleased by this, and it slams Superman into a building, which doesn't hurt the Man of Steel, but does send debris hurtling towards the ground. So Superman catches that, tries to use his infrared vision to heat up the robot, but it hits him with an inertia ray, which sends Superman hurtling out of control. The robot continues onto Star Labs, rips off the roof, and steals a small device from a computer console and seemingly eats it. And just shoves it into its robot maw. So, Superman pulls the old burrowing through the earth trick. <laughs> which apparently is a special move of his, as I've discovered recently. <laughs> and is surprised to find that it is there is a gravity beam coming from the foot of the robot that is keeping him stuck in the ground. And he, he quickly realizes that the beam isn't a weapon, but a, but a function of the robot to keep it balanced, and he uses that to drive the robot into the ground. The head pops off and flies away. Superman chases it and is surprised when the head breaks apart. Lex Luthor, meanwhile, appears out of the top of the remains of the robot and chides his old enemy for falling into such an easy trap before, you know, like, taking off. So Superman heads back all dejected, like, you know, someone stole his milk money or something and he heads back to the WGBS building into his identity as Clark Kent and he finds Lois Lane and Steve Lombard aka the biggest douchebag on the face of the planet I I don't like Steve Lombard at all. No me either I liked him once, and that was right before he went away, so that should tell you something. If Clark Kent had just one time put his arm around Steve's shoulders and then flown him up into space and hurled him into the sun, though, he would have then been my most favorite character. (laughs) For the 30 seconds he survived. Exactly. I always hated this fucking asshole, and not not to get into whole other areas, but why have they brought this guy back in modern comics? <laughs> but anyway. It's okay. They're not doing anything with him like all the other characters they brought back, so it doesn't matter. <sighs> Maybe they will. And- Maybe he will end up throwing him into the sun. DC, are you listening? That would bring me back into the fold of Superman modern day comics right there. Is if, if Clark Kent would, would hurl Steve Lombard into the sun, I would just... <laughs> Bye. Suspend his ban on killing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Does not apply to complete fucking assholes, sports jock douchebags. Well, one of the things Steve would do, and it became like a hallmark of his character, is he was always trying to play tricks on Clark. And Clark would see them a mile away and would turn it around on him. And this time, it is, I shit you not, a bucket of water suspended over a door so that when you open it up, the water dumps on top of you. Well, Clark turns the tables, the bucket ends up hitting Lombard, and he joins his co-workers in Morgan Edge's office where Edge reminds them that they are on their way to the World News Conference in New York City. A handy newscast from the ENN, 
the Expositional News Network, tells the story of the robot's rampage and reveals that the robot stole a newly designed programming circuit used for the direction of satellites in Earth orbit. And after getting chewed out by Morgan Edge, Clark changes back into Superman and thinks that he spent so much time tearing that robot apart looking for the stolen item that he didn't think to backtrack the robot's trail of destruction to see where it came from. He dives into the into the scene and discovers an undersea lab and is invited in by Lex Luthor, who is rather happy to see him since his plans not only included the stealing of the circuit, but also the death of Superman. So Luther activates a series of lasers that eventually form a maze of death around the Man of Steel, but Superman gets out of it because that's kind of what Superman does. So Luther scrambles to get the circuit away via a pneumatic tube. Superman uses his heat vision to knock a hole into the wall of the undersea lab and takes Luther off to jail and still has time to catch his flight to New York with the rest of the gang as Clark Kent. And that ends the intro to Superman, the Superman 101 section of the book. Awesome. Which I thought was a great... It is, book. too. It's just a sort of... Yeah, here's Superman and Luther in a prototypical Superman versus Luther adventures shenanigan. Here's Superman. Here's the secret identity. Here's all the people he interacts with. Here's some of the shit that goes on in his day-to-day life. And I do wonder if people are like, why does Superman just punch Steve Lombard in the head? <laughs> that Morgan Edge guy is kind of douchey, too. Yep. Well, uh, especially since originally he was a minion of Darkseid. Oh, so when he was first created, he was he was a Jack Kirby creation. He first appeared in the pages of uh, of Jimmy Olsen when Jack Kirby took it over, and then he just they kind of I guess they thought the character had legs, so they decided to keep him around. And it was rather controversial at the time because in '71, Clark Kent went from being a, uh, a reporter for a major metropolitan newspaper to being an anchor man. Right, right. On the evening news. And that kind of plays in a little later into this story. But it's kind of interesting, not to jump ahead too much, but it, the the main difference between this and the second crossover with Superman and Spider-Man is here it's still firmly entrenched in the newscaster, Kent. Right. Whereas in the second one, it's way more the reporter. Right. I mean, Perry White's not even in this thing. Yeah, that that's actually one of my notes, is it's surprising the people that we don't see. I mean, they, they really did a good job of incorporating so many characters of, of both heroes' universes, but there are some notable absences, you know, for Superman, Perry White, and then, you know, as we'll see with Spider-Man, oh, yeah. there's a big uh, absence in, in his uh, normal gallery of characters as well but i i don't want to spoil too far ahead on that wait there's perry white he's like in the background he doesn't yeah he's not really doing anything yeah yeah he's just sitting there holding a cigar (laughs) (laughs) i know he and jameson should have had a cigar moment at some point oh no shit one of them clips the other guy's cigar for him or something or they both get their cigars knocked out of their faces or something or get caught with the exploding cigar trick or something (laughs) because <laughs> they made sure every other character gets a little meeting with somebody else, you know, so. Now, here, here's a question for, for Scott more than anybody. It, does it seem to me that the same guy isn't drawing Superman throughout this entire book? It, he's not. That was actually one of my going to be one of my comments. I love the art in this. I, I always have since, you know, since I, I bought it, uh, whenever I bought it. I actually read the second team up before this and and track this down as a true back issue when i was a kid 
and I love the art in it, but now that I'm older and having read a zillion comic books and, and I know certain artist styles and certain anchor styles, it's it, it's a lot more obvious to me now than it ever was before that this is one of those many hands projects. Oh. That the, the art style changes sometimes very dramatically from page to page, sometimes even panel to panel. And while the bulk of the book is Ross Andrew penciling and Dick Giordano inking, there's also uh, Neil Adams has a hand in this. I believe Terry Austin did some inking in this. There's uh, there's a, a lot of uncredited work. Um, also, uh, I think Ramita, John Ramita Sr., I think, did some work in this book too. But uh, I could almost tell you... Like uh, I can, I'm looking at a panel right now that has Neil Adams written all over it. Oh yeah, I mean, especially with some of the Superman shots. Yeah, that is, that is. I mean, most of the Spider-Man is pretty consistent, right? And Ross Andrew, I think, is a very underappreciated Spider-Man artist. Mm-hmm. I thought he had a great run on the character. Every issue I've read in Marvel Tales, where they reprinted the Andrew run, I'm like, wow, that is so freaking dynamic, right? And and it's just so awesome looking. But right there on that one page, and uh, I'm going to ask everyone to forgive me, I could not find my copy of the reprint that came out in 96 of this, so I can't tell you the exact page number. But right when uh, Superman confronts Lex Luthor in his undersea lab, you see Superman shooting down a, a tube, which I guess you know is the best way to break into a lab. But that next panel, that's freaking Neil Adams, and you can't tell me anything different. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's, Neil yeah. Adams had a very specific Superman, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I look at this as almost like, and the, this makes it sound... Like, maybe I'm putting it down, but it's like, this is like standard comic book art for me. This is like the way, like, just, it's not too stylistic. It's not too realistic. It's just perfect comic art that reproduces really well when it's printed on old school comic paper. Right. (laughs) And I love seeing stuff like this where, where you saw a lot of it during that time period, but this has a quality through it the whole way you know right a lot of time and effort was put into it so everything i think just looks beautiful there's a lot you know the perspective shots of buildings and stuff the shot where um superman's following the path of destruction is great yeah it's a great aerial shot you know sort of reminiscent of destroy <laughs> no that first shot of superman flying in and trying to use his x-ray vision is just yeah. awesome mm-hmm well, this 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 open this comic opens exactly how it should, you know. Oh yeah. Once you get past the spl- you know, you got your splash page with them fa- facing off. It that's classic, but then it just opens with a double page spread of just carnage, and it's 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 ahead of its. T- it reminds me. I can't remember the artist's name. He used to work with Frank Miller. He would draw these like hard boiled comics. I think. You know, and when you look around at all the cars strewn around on the ground, you, you just see Jeff Darrow. Yes, yes, you can see where he got his ideas was exactly from stuff like this. I mean, the detail. There's when you start looking at it more and more, it's like, oh, there's people running away. There's every crack in the pavement you can see. Right. 
just what's happened before it and it's all beautifully drawn and you know architecturally accurate and you really get that sense of superman flying in and See, my guess on it. this page right here is that superman himself is inked by giordano yeah. but i think that everything else the background and everything is done by terry austin for, especially because on the extreme bottom left you've got terry's bar and then on the uh, right hand side you've got austin's bread i think he's basically signed his work but i mean just looking at that pile of rubble on the left hand ne- side I, I never... of the page that looks like terry austin rubble to me totally does cuz it's so super detailed yeah it it, it looks like x rubble Mm-hmm. It looks like, you know, when Byrne and, and Austin were on X-Men and the, and the sheer amount of damage that they would do to structures. And it's yep. it's it's very – I like Giordano. He is a very good inker. He's not that type of inker. Right. No, he leans more towards the Gene Colony sort of look. Yeah, exactly. Kind of soft, kind of muted. Uh-huh. The mm-hmm. figures are a little more important than the backgrounds. And that's nothing against him because he's a – He's a, a very talented artist, but for this scene, you needed somebody that could do... I mean, this is a little before Perez, right. uh, but you needed someone to do that kind of Perez, you know... Realism. <laughs> you, you, look, you look at those piles of, of debris, and it would make up two buildings worth of debris. <laughs> right. I mean, th- th- you think if this... Just think if this was a shot... The first shot in a movie, and you're following Superman over his shoulder, and he just rolls around a corner, and you see this thing walking out of a building, going, "Ah, Superman! I was hoping you'd show up." It would be so awesome, just mm-hmm. <laughs> like cars screeching to a halt. This is how Return running. Superman Returns should have began. <laughs> just boom! I'm not kidding. No, not boom. Krong. 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 Yeah. I do love that sound effect. Grog. I swear to God, I thought that was a Lee Kirby monster from like 1957. <laughs> that is a cool looking robot, though. I love it. He's he's like he's got it's like his torso is made up of like one of the uh, Apollo capsules, and then his head's like a bunch of TRS 80s all stuck together. Or <laughs> yeah, That's cool. But if you look at his arm. Uh, especially on that in, on the page where he throws Superman in the building, that one arm looks like it can flip around and it has another hand right yeah. up mm-hmm. where the elbow is, and that's really neat to look at. Yeah, yeah. it would yeah. Uh, it would sort of fold up, yeah, and uh, and then turn around into there, and then he'd have a little more exact pointy hand. Well, that's what he does. I'm an idiot. That's exactly. What oh, he does. yeah, yeah, he does to, gra- to grab the thing and eat it, and he does look happy. All right. You remind me of uh, of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in, the, <laughs> in that scene, but he well, does look like Rom. He's got a little of uh, Marvin the Paranoid Android from the original version of Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy from BBC. <laughs> yeah, he does, but he's way happier. You know, he's got the Lex Luthor and piloting him, so he's just like, "Yeah, hey, Superman, come on!" I'm happy they found a way to to work tunneling into the issue. Yeah, I was about to say. It's so consistent. So consistent with Superman's MO. I love it. That's why it's his MO. <laughs> but I think these pages have every stock Superman flying shot in them. Mm-hmm. You have the, the, I'm just out here, my arms spread wide, gliding around, you know, right below the Neil Adams dive. 
Well, when you have these team ups, both sides have to sort of strut their stuff and do their. They'd be like, "This is who I am. This is who I am." You know, right. and then and then the fun is where those two things collide. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So you want it, you want sort of the prototypical Spider-Man story and the prototypical Superman story to mix together, and and hopefully magic will occur. In this case, it pretty much does. Oh yeah. Now here's my biggest question for this particular portion of the story: How exactly did Lex Luthor get away? In this sequence right here, Superman shoves the robot into the ground, and the head pops off, flies into the air. Superman flies up, and now you said that you thought the capsule just broke up. I always thought that Superman was actually punching it apart. But I, uh, I thought it just—I thought it exploded on. Oh, him. maybe. maybe. Probably, it depends how like Luther was able means. to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what does "croom" mean? Wikipedia "croom." <laughs> um, but you know, it just shows Luthor like looking out a door. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I get it. He was still in the robot part of it. Yeah, I thought he, he was, was in the yeah. head. No, he was in the uh, he was in the remains of the robot. Ha, huh? Superman, you do not disappoint me. Even a child could have seen that flying head was a decoy, and then he goes off like the freaking right. Joker. But still, yeah. <laughs> Superman wasn't that far away. He he punched yeah. the head apart. I mean, he's Superman. As we yeah. find later, Superman can go. Very fucking fast. Right, yeah. Faster than a fucking ha-ha-ha-ha-ha rocket pack. Well, this is also the Superman who could literally use his uh, telescopic vision to be like watching some woman in the shower on a distant planet in some other right. galaxy, you know, while he was at work, so... Was you it know, that woman from can't... the beginning of Howard the Duck? <laughs> I mean, he can't look across town... And see, oh shit! Back there in the in the body of this robot, Lex Luthor's getting away. <laughs> you know, I, it well, just... we're talking in the same scene where we had lasers that can apparently cut even Superman. This is true. This is so, true. you know, they, they they did have to take him down a peg or two. Well, to team least, up with Spider-Man. At right. least Luthor told him they could cut him. We never find out because he right. doesn't get nicked. So he could have they could have just been stupid lasers that he got out of a vending machine somewhere, you know, that you play with your <laughs> cats with. Exactly. They could be just those little stupid laser pointers and you know oh shit. I guess I just mellowed out as the book went along or something, but I have more nitpicks in this first chapter than anything else in Well, you know <laughs> I mean if you're gonna if you're gonna pick out continuity and logic problems with a story like this, you're gonna be working all day, which is fun. <laughs> right. So I mean we're gonna do it. But you know, I mean, it's the the kind of story it is. You just take it for granted. I, you know, it's it's fun to see when the bucket of water's over his head and he's doing that little like somehow he's bending his wind upward. He's just blowing it out <laughs> like he's got a Popeye pipe or something, and just like I'll just blow it up in the air for now and douse him when he comes through. And it's like, what kind of prank is that anyway? It at a workplace, you know? It's kind of a cruel one. It's at least it's not Philip pig blood or something like that <laughs> they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you <laughs> alright here's my other one I, 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 will, I will try to curtail myself on, on too many nitpicks but this one to me was a whopper <laughs> alright as Luthor gets the sense of well I'm probably headed to jail again he gets one of those little cartridges like you get at the bank 
and he slips his little doohickey that he stole into a pneumatic tube and sends it on its way. It says, this pneumatic tube will whisk the circuit to an alternate hideaway where it will remain until I retrieve it 24 hours from now. Uh, no, it won't, dude. You're underwater in a giant robot fiddler crab, remember? You're not in a fucking hideaway somewhere, you know? How does that work? Where's it going to go? It's just going to go elsewhere in the robot, right? No, it shoots out. It shoots out. It shoots through the robot till it comes. You just don't see this part. Till it comes to this sort of fish type submarine little tiny thing. It clips into that. That triggers the launching mechanism. It goes out and has a homing beacon where it goes to its spot where see my theory is (sighs) he's got a teleporter at the end of it with the heisenberg compensators even better (laughs) and and it just goes to wherever he needs it to go yeah but but you have to have the heisenberg compensators (laughs) you just have to i'm sorry oh god why did i invite you guys here again and if he does have a long tube system through the water, then that should be very easy for Superman to follow also and retrieve the you important would think thing. So, that yeah. And, and to still... answer Scott's question, because we're the only one that will put up with your shit. So <laughs> yeah, that's what my it. wife tells me. Too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here's 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 my last one. Is uh, okay. We we failed to talk about the uh, origin of Superman. What do they call it? The hero identification page. I love this, by the way. The art in this is really fantastic. It's got the classic rocket that I really like. You know, holy crap! That is not in the thing that I have. Me neither. Really? Me neither. Yeah. Oh, seriously? There's there. You don't have the origin page? No, man. You know, before the next prologue, there's a page that says, uh, "Now a pause for hero identification." It's a really awesome picture of superman you know flying above the city it looks to me like the body is by neil adams and the head is by ross andrew but it's hard to tell exactly and it's got surrounding that there's four panels one is a classic shot of the you know the superman rocket origin you know the the origin story rocket from this era you know with the blue body the red nose red fins coming away from krypton there's a shot of Superman holding up an ocean liner, which is pretty cool. A shot of him getting hit by a laser in, in the in the chest. And then a shot of him like using his x-ray vision. But here's what nags me on this one. It says, uh, Stronger than any man alive on Earth, uh, Superman was adopted by the Kents, who taught him to use his indestructibility in an everlasting fight against crime for truth, justice, and the Terran way. Terran? What the hell happened to the American way? Well, this was 1976. It was yeah. after Vietnam, people. Yeah, well, but 76 you know, was the bicentennial. You, I don't. I. I can't remember a more patriotic period in American history that you know that. Well, I the Terran way includes America, man. Uh, touchy feely bullshit. Shut up, hippie. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get on to chapters. Or to, yeah, chapters. I really wish they would have included that in the digital copy that I have. That's really stupid that they left yeah, that out. It's a chip. I wonder what it's out of. I, I mean, I wonder what that's what that digital copy is from. If it's well, one of mine the is it, it's a reprint of uh-huh. it's, it's a copy of the. I can't remember if that one had it. So see, I think I have the same one. Mine has like the the. It's basically the cover, but it has sort of a gold. Yeah. It's it's on a gold yeah. cover, and it looks like it was a regular size comic size version of the yeah. giant size. 
Going into Prologue 2 takes us to Manhattan, where the amazing Spider-Man, lounging on a flagpole, witnesses some goons looting the Metropolitan Museum. Spider-Man sets his automatic camera and leaps into battle, making quick work of the crooks when Dr. Otto Octavius, better known to the world as Dr. Octopus, arrives on the scene to show off his latest invention, the Flying Octopus. It's a mechanical airship that looks a lot like a cross between like Brainiac's headship and the Blue Beetle's bug to me. Spider-Man insults Ock's new ride and the battle is on. One of uh, the Doctor's henchmen clouts Spider-Man a good one on the back of the head and knocks him out, but not before Spider-Man has had a chance to tag Doc Ock with a spider tracer. Spider-Man comes to and he finds Ock is gone, and uh, he's surrounded by the uh, NYPD. He tries to swing away, but his web shooters are dry. So our beleaguered hero runs down the side of the Met to escape, dodging bullets as he goes. Arriving on the roof of the Daily Bugle, he switches to his Peter Parker identity and sells J. Jonah Jameson exclusive pics of the Flying Octopus. Just in time uh, to make the late addition, Jameson orders a flunky to develop the pics and plaster the best one on page one. In the meantime, an ecstatic Jameson dotes on Peter Parker. 45 minutes later, Robbie Robertson and the same flunky arrive in Jameson's office with a copy of the paper that has just shipped out, and they present it to Jameson. His big page one exclusive is revealed to be a fuzzy, out-of-sync jumble of a photo showing only parts of Spider-Man and Ock, and Jameson attempts to strangle Peter Parker. Robert <laughs> Robertson pulls... Jonah off of Peter, and Jameson orders Parker out of the building just as Mary Jane Watson, Peter's girlfriend at the time, arrives. Outside, Peter and MJ walk, and we get a nice short explanation for why, (sighs) thank you, sweet Jesus, that Peter's 120-year-old Aunt May won't be seen in this particular story. (laughs) God damn, I hate Aunt May. So Peter's spider sense goes She's off. She's hot. Oh, yeah, okay. Peter's spider sense goes off, and he sees a blimp high overhead. He feigns sickness and runs away from uh, Mary Jane and runs into the Empire State Building and onto an empty elevator. Arriving on the 80th floor as Spider-Man, he runs up the spire and up the mooring mast and throws himself off into space at the blimp. Falling toward the airship, Spider-Man goes to shoot a web line when, oh boy, he forgot to refill his empty web shooters because he's a dumbass. He manages to angle himself and crashes into and through the tissue paper-like side of the blimp, which is all revealed just to be a clever cover-up for Ock's flying octopus ship. Spider-Man and Ock battle, and with no one minding the controls of the airship, it plummets into the Central Park Reservoir. Spidey belts Ock unconscious and leaves him for the cops. The next morning, Peter joins Jameson, Robertson, MJ, Betty Brant, and Ned Leeds in front of the Bugle and they, as they are all going to go to the uh, World News Conference together. And that's the end of Prologue 2, and we get a brief but awesomely drawn recap of Spider-Man's origin and abilities, just like we got one for Superman. Now, I'm assuming that you guys don't when have you this say, there? Yeah, when you say we, you mean you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, that sucks that they didn't put that into your edition. Now, this Spider-Man pick, 
I don't know how to describe it really, but I know that this has been used again elsewhere. I, I think there may have even been a a poster or a T-shirt or something. It's it's Spider-Man swinging, almost like he's swinging down to land. He's holding a, a web line in one hand, and then his op- his other hand, his uh, this would be his right hand, is just kind of open, almost like he's he's. It's almost like he's waving to the to the reader or what. But it's a it's a really cool. It's a really dynamic image. It's it's laid out exactly like the Superman one, except that Spider Man's on the opposite side of the page from where Superman was, and then the four panels recounting his origin and powers are on the opposite side of the page. But it's it's basically the same style, and it just you know it has one panel of Peter being bitten by the spider, then one page that's really just a close up of his mask explaining you know his motivation, you know, he couldn't prevent the death of his uncle, but he should have been able to kind of thing, you know, tells, you know, another panel shows that he himself invented his web shooters. And then another panel, uh, showing him putting, uh, uh, web shooter packs into his belt and just, you know, just explains his basic origin and basic motivations as, uh, as a hero. And that's prologue too. So what did you guys think of this part? I liked it. I really wish Dr. Octopus could have come up with something more imaginative than the flying octopus for, you know. <laughs> there's got even the octocopter or something like that, although it isn't really a helicopter. is something a little catchier, but otherwise it's the same thing. It's sort of a standard Spider-Man conflict ending with it's starting with a, a crime in progress and ending in the water. With the bad guy getting apprehended, right? Yeah, I noticed that too. The the parallel with with being in the water and, and capturing the crook in the water. Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but yeah, I, I definitely noticed that. S- sort of how it worked out. Yeah, my favorite line in this whole prologue part with Spider Man though is when Ock introduces the flying octopus. And Spider-Man makes a great reference. He just says, yeesh, he says, and I thought the Spider-Mobile was a fiasco. That's one of my notes, actually. Yeah. I love the mention of the Spider-Mobile. Yep. I also like the fact that you know they, they had Lex Luthor as Superman's villain. And arguably, Lex Luthor is Superman's archenemy. Right. Uh, the thing is, is that I've always considered the Green Goblin to be Spider-Man's archenemy. Because the Green Goblin hit him where it hurts, right? You know, he's he's the villain that took the time to figure out who this guy was, and then he killed the woman he loved, or he was responsible for that. It, you can't have him because the very same writer that wrote this issue that we're reading is the one that killed him. So right. you can't use him. So I have always believed, and I think the movies did this right, that. Dr. Octopus is his second biggest villain. You know, he is really and truly Spider-Man, but evil. Right. He's a brilliant scientist who had an accident with radiation and just went batshit crazy. Right. So if you're going to have the Spider-Man villain, it's got to be Doc Ock. You know, the Vulture ain't cutting it. The Shocker sure as shit ain't cutting it. Well, I like like the, the dynamic... Of these two villains, and I, I yes. think they work very well in this one. And I will go so far as to say, I think that this is really the last time. You know, strangely, it's the first time, but I think it's also the last time that you get the two arguably top tier 
villains for whatever two heroes or, or hero yeah. teams or whatever are teaming up that actually works. Because after this, the only other combination that ever seems to work well for me is when one of the villains is top tier and the other one is kind of the flunky to that one. Because every other attempt to do two top tier villains to me just didn't work. You know, you, you either they were too powerful or they clashed or something That's like that. That's not how supervillains should work anyway. They shouldn't be able to get together like that. They're right. Maybe for a brief <laughs> amount of time if it if it helps them. But yeah, for the most part, yeah. And this is what happens with this one is is as least as power goes. Right. It works too. Yeah, I, th- I think but it this, does. But this is the quintessential Spider-Man story. You you see him fighting, you see him quipping, you see him running out of web fluid, which he was constantly fucking doing. You see the cops chase him. You see the cops chasing him. You see the dynamic with Jameson and Robbie Robertson and Mary Jane shows up. Uh, you know, and, and it's just, and even at the end, you get to see Ned Leeds and Betty Brandt. Right. So just about everybody is here except for Aunt May, and I really don't see how you could have worked her into this story. Right. I think she was better left out. Uh, I I am not the hater that you are apparently, <laughs> but at this point she was pretty much the only time I liked Aunt May was when J. Michael Straczynski was writing Spider Man. Because he made her a very dynamic character. Every other time that I've I've read Spider-Man books, Aunt May has driven me up the fucking wall. Right. So, well, honestly, my favorite, and and this is going to make you laugh, but it's not for the reason I wanted to make you laugh. It is my favorite Aunt May story is the death of Aunt May from Amazing <laughs> Four Hundred, and not because she dies. You know, it's not like yeah, finally the bitch is dead. <laughs> it's because that is a great story. They finally, yes. in what was supposed to be the final story with Aunt May, they finally did with her, which the thing I always thought if they were going to have this character, they should have done from the beginning, they make her feel like a real person. They, they give her a story and motivation and good dialogue and good interaction with Peter and everything that she never had. And that's why it's always driven me crazy that they backpedaled from that story because... You finally took a character, whether you love her or whether you hate her, and they gave her an awesome send-off. That story teared me up. It was it was really good. And this is for a character I never liked. It's teared me up. <laughs> and then, you know, a few years later, they backpedal on the whole thing, and it, it's, you know, I, I'm well, sad well, that they did it because it was really a good book. But JMS did something very similar, is that instead of, of making her either the, the guilt trip aunt or... You know, the one that's constantly dying or trying to die or might be dying or <laughs> looks like, you know, if you sneezed really hard, she would just puff away in, 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 a, in a pile of dust. Like, you know, at the end of Indiana Jones and the whole in the in the last crusade, <laughs> he took her. And one of the first things he did was he had her discover that Peter was Spider-Man. Right. Because because it turns out the Aunt May that died wasn't Aunt May. It was an actress hired by Norman Osborn. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, and, not listening, not listening. <laughs> but from there on, she became a very dynamic force in his life. Became the aunt and the mother figure that, that he really needed. And then when he became part of the Avengers, she developed a relationship with Jarvis that actually worked. 
you know, it's not just the two old people getting together to, you know, have freaky old people sex, but, you know, but they did that <laughs> after they did that earlier this year. They had, uh, there could be a DC team up where they have a three way with Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Aunt May is now currently married to J. Jonah Jameson's father. And Peter walked in on them having sex. I couldn't <sighs> see for a week. So, uh. All right. Oh, now, hey. that just, it, that totally doesn't, that totally doesn't work. I mean, how, how freaking old would J. Jonah Jameson's father have to be? <laughs> At least as old as Aunt May. Civil oh War era. God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Civil War era. Civil, the last Confederate But you know, there show. are people listening to this. It's like, no, Civil War is fairly recent. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Here's a question for you that you might be able to answer, Michael. Um, on page eight, there's a mm-hmm. copy of the Daily Planet sitting there on the edge of the table. And it says, now parts of the words are obscured, but I'm assuming that this is what it reads, is that Abel confesses in Chaikin murder. I wonder what that's all about. Do you, do you have any uh, insight? Jack Abel and Howard Chaikin? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's, that's what I figured, but I wonder what the what the in-joke is there or whatever. <laughs> do, do they really have some sort of animosity, or, or is that just a... Well, they, they just might, might have wanted as... to get their name. I mean, we would put something like that with our names in some reference if we could somewhere. We would call up, you know, one of our Inker friends and say, you know, hey, have one of us bury a hatchet in someone's face on a TV screen <laughs> or something in the background. No, I, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, as I'm discovering from the more I learn about the, the, the behind the scenes stuff of what happened during the 70s and 80s in comics, there might have been a fight between the two of them. Right. And, and, and this is how it's manifesting itself. And, and only the people who are involved know what's going on. So uh, I, I don't know anything specifically, though. I just realized as I'm looking at that that particular panel that Lois Lane looks like she's one of Archie's girlfriends, and uh, Morgan Edge looks like he's about to strangle her from behind. He looks maniacal in that in that picture. <laughs> well, she had it coming. I mean, <laughs> but you, you, we were talking about dynamic art when when he jumps off the Empire State Building. It's very rare in comic books where you could make someone feel completely disoriented. Oh yeah, but they 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 really sell it here. And I like that because that is Spider-Man. That mm-hmm. was one of the great things about the the Raimi films, is that, and they got better and better with it, especially at the end of the first one when you were swinging through New York. Yeah, it's like holy crap, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's uh, what that's supposed to look like. Yeah, right. And it's just like, yeah, yeah they they do it here, and I've. Now, as much as I like Dr. Octopus as a Spider-Man villain, I hate this costume on him. The green spandex never did anything for me mm-hmm. uh, with Doc Ock. I just, I don't know. It looks it looks like a generic supervillain costume. Right. You know, like like anybody could freaking wear it. And and I think Doc Ock should be a little more distinctive than just having the, the four extra arms. So that, that's my only real nitpick of, uh, of him in this book. As a doctor, someone who's very intelligent, he does have some really bad supervillain lines like, Why you? You! You! 
<laughs> I think it's awesome. Before Doc is Claude. Yeah, Claude. Yeah, Claude. Yeah, I think those are the exact two words he was looking at. As in dumbbell and fool. Yeah, those are the words he was looking for. You Can dumbbell. He calls Doc Ock Tubbo. That man is cut. Yeah. Holy crap. If, if that's being fat, sign me up. Jesus. Yeah, it's like he went to the Carmine Infantino Star Wars school of uh, getting buff in the comics. <laughs> of suddenly buff. All right, so we're back from an impromptu break between uh, prologues two and three. These uh, guys grabbed a snack. I grabbed me a strawberry daiquiri. So we'll uh, go. Oh, there you go. Where this one's going to go by the end of it. But uh... all right, man, it's on you. Prologue three. Now you'll see. You'll notice maybe mine is. This is a short, definitely a shorter prologue too. But I sort of expected that. How was how it was going to go? Okay. Uh, Doc Ock and Luther meet when they're bringing Luther in to this sort of super Guantanamo Bay for <laughs> They decide, you know, someday if they ever, you know, they're just sort of pipe dreaming if we ever get out of here, you know, we can wipe out each other's enemies and that sort of stranger in a train crisscross murders sort of plan. And uh, it's more than cheap talk since Luther's actually snuck in an escape kit under a false layer of skin, sort of like the Six Million Dollar Man action figures. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it, it makes this, you know, high-pitched sound, or at least what looks like a high-pitched sound on the page, or it makes a sound wave that n- disables and knocks out the guard and also re-energizes Octavius's robot arms. So... He actually rides out of the prison on Ock Ock's back. So Who creepy. runs Bata Town? <laughs> Who runs Bata Town? Master Blaster runs Bata Who Town. Who runs Bata Town? Master <laughs> Blaster runs Bata Town. Alright, now uh, just a quick uh, shout out to Avengers Forever. Did, did you ever read that, uh, Michael? Avengers Forever? Yes. I liked it a lot. It was uh, started out by Buziak, but ended up by Roger Stern. So yeah, I was. Oh really yeah, that's right. That. Yeah, and you know, I never caught that before. You're right. Well, there's. Uh, I don't. I couldn't tell you what issue it was in, but there was one part in that where they're like looking at like what was it like flashes of the time stream or the multiverse or some friggin' thing, and yeah. one of the pictures that they see in that is this picture. Of Luther riding Doc Ock out of prison. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. You know, I thought that that was really cool that that Marvel, you know, after all these years, actually referenced this story. Because up to that point, the only time I had ever seen this ever referenced again, and I don't think DC ever acknowledged it in any sort of continuity or whatever. But but shortly after this book, when uh, when What If started up in the very first issue of what if when the watchers explaining the idea of alternate realities and you know basically setting up the premise of what what if was going to be about he basically chalks this whole up adventure up to a what if story because it shows what? superman's arm like you know like just like the the like from the cuff of his blue sleeve to his fist punching spider-man and that's all you ever see and it says something about 
you know, an alternate reality is where Spider-Man's battle with a certain colorfully clad alien took place, or something to that effect. Yeah. The only time I ever saw it referenced anywhere near DC, and it wasn't an official DC thing, was in the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths Index. Right. Where they were listing the different Earths. And I forget what Earth they called this, but they said this is the Earth where the the Marvel and the DC team-ups occurred. Wasn't it Earth-Marvel? Something like that, I forget. Yeah. Um, Earth crossover. That was Earth crossover, I think is what it was. Or crossover Earth. or Yeah, so, yeah like I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I remember reading that as well. I've got three notes for this section. One is, hey, guard, don't taunt the fucking supervillain. <laughs> yeah. Okay? You know, because it never, you know, if this would happen today, there'd be like three pages of that guard getting killed by Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. Like with an ice pick and, you know, like, well, like a can of Coke. Like that scene in X3. Yeah, you know, that guy's giving him shit, and it's just like, or is giving a, what's-her-name, crap. Mystique, yeah. Mystique crap, and, you know, even in X2, that fat guard was constantly beating on him, and you knew he was going to die badly. Right. My second note is when Luther is pulling a Steve Austin, um, you know what? I thought in, in prison... They uh, confiscated web weapons because Luther's got some guns there, man, and I thought they'd take those right away. <laughs> Good Lord, look how cut he is. <laughs> I guess you'd have to be after fighting Superman for so These long. These crossover things are like the movies. Everybody gets to be buffed up a little bit and a little <laughs> more glad. You know, it's like they have a more handsome actor playing the the octopus rather than the fat guy who really is the octopus. <laughs> <laughs> That ain't me, man. That ain't the real octopus. And uh, I'm sorry. It looks like he's he's. It looks like he's fucking Doc Ock there at the end. <laughs> and it looks like they're both really enjoying it too. Oh, that's just wrong. It's wrong. But dude, did you watch? They find Oz? it hilarious. Ha 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 Suddenly, I'm gay. Ha 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 which I guess that matches up. That sentence makes sense grammatically and synaptically. But, no, but that's yeah. all I got. I mean, it's 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 a short little scene to set up. Hey, the villains have met, and you know? Luther's actually shaking his fist as he goes away. <laughs> all they needed was one M and W at the beginning of all that. <laughs> What's funny in this is that Luther is actually the one that proposes swapping enemies, which just strikes me as really, really weird. You know that 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 he would be the one and not Octavius. He gets the better deal out of yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Octavius versus Superman and Luther versus Spider Man. You tell me who's got the better deal in that in that right. little. Exactly. Seriously, the Kryptonian's a pushover. I mean, we make it look better than it is. Seriously, you go fight the indestructible man god. Right. I'll uh, (laughs) I'll take the guy who's got the proportionate strength of a spider. No, the the guy who's sort of the manifestation of the modern hero zeitgeist and uh, (laughs) Superman. (laughs) You you fight him. (laughs) All right. Now, now I'll fight the kid. Right. (laughs) Exactly. I'll take the teenager. Yeah, exactly. Now, do you guys again? Are you guys deprived of the uh, of the origin page yeah. here? Yeah, sadly, yes. Are oh, you guys just plain suck? You, you you need to you need to get the original 
the original release of this. Wow, that blows. Yeah, because there's again, there's a nice little origin page here that actually has both villains on the same page. And it's uh, at the top we got Doc Ock, and it's just you know a real brief you know summary of of how he became Doc Ock, and you know he's got the telepathic limbs, and then uh, a brief thing of uh, of Luther, and it's weird because the art is a little bit wonky. I mean, Doc Ock looks really really cool. It's it's pretty much the uh, the quintessential Doc Ock, but Luther, I don't know. I, don't, I think the art is actually by two different artists, although it's supposed to be the same ones. He he looks. Very silver agey in this particular picture, but it's cool. He's flying with his boot jets and all that. It's still pretty cool. You know, Luther's a, a little cooler than Doc Ock. Uh, you know, especially as in, in in terms of being a super villain, he's definitely in a, in a somewhat higher tier. I mean, Doc Ock's up. Yeah, there. he's a run the world style, right? But what I want is the deleted scene of them comparing origins. Uh, of of Luther going so so what happened? It's like well you know I, I I was a college professor and I created these arms so that I could experiment with radiation and shit went bad and I got exposed to it. Now these these arms are fused to my body. I mean melted into the flesh, and it, and I went a little crazy. I'll admit I'll admit I went a little crazy, but uh, you know since then it's just you know. I, I've just I've got to freaking kill Spider Man because he's the one that always tries to stop me from from ruling the world. What's your story? Yeah. Well, uh, I was boyhood friends with Superboy, and uh, he was really jealous of me. And one day he uh, I, I saved him from some kryptonite, and then he built me a lab. And then out of his jealousy, he uh, uh, he blew out a fire that had erupted in the lab, and all my hair fell out, and a lot of people made fun of me. And uh, so I swore revenge. So your hair fell out, and I'm completely and utterly mutated from, like, the neck to the sternum. (laughs) You fucking suck. (laughs) Well, it's funny because that is actually pretty much the way this page reads. I mean, you, you you look at the pictures, and the pictures are pretty cool. And Doc Ock's origin reads pretty cool you know that he was this physicist and this accident happening now he's got these cool limbs and then you read luther's and it's pretty much like i lost my hair and i want to kill superman for it and it's like wow so yeah even though luther is arguably the the heavier hitter of the two in terms of you know the the schemes he's trying to pull down and stuff like that you read the origin, and his is definitely the more laughable of the two origin stories. So now, I, I'm of the opinion that there is a lot more to this Luther than that. Uh, even when you read that original story, those people taunt Lex Luther. I mean, I'd want to fucking kill everybody, too. <laughs> if I was walking around town and everyone's like, oh, there's Lex Luther. He thinks he's so smart. And a town full of, like, inbred hicks. So, <laughs> Yeah, then why hasn't he one by one just murdered them and gotten it out of his system? He could easily track them down and just do them all in and be done with it. Uh, We're going to move to chapter one then? Yeah, chapter one. Everyone shows up at the Coliseum at the same time, and after some light banter from Ned Leeds and Betty Brandt and Robbie Robertson, and you see Clark Kent Lois Lane, we see J. Jonah Jameson just chewing Peter out some more. I mean, he just, he comes off that escalator, it's like, Parker, I want a word with you. 
So Peter has just basically had enough of JJJ's shit, and he just storms off. Mary Jane catches up with him, and they discuss the blow-up before Mary Jane suggests that they go check out the exhibit. And Clark and Lois are already doing so and discuss ComLab 1, the world's first communications satellite. And apparently this is to be... I want to make sure I get this, uh, this quote right. From what I understand, it combines the best features of ComSat and Skylab. In fact, and that's when Lois cuts Clark off and says, Look, you're boring the shit out of me. Uh... <laughs> You're a dork, you know, and I'm just I'm just gonna go off and, and do something else and and Clark's like, well, you know, there is a bit of a mystery about what the purpose of this uh, satellite is when suddenly Clark overhears Morgan Edge uh, agreeing with somebody that, you know, we're going to replace Clark Kent with someone like Walter Cronkite during this whole thing because he's just he's just not as well known and Clark confronts him and, and unlike Peter Parker who, you know, Tells uh, tells JJ to to eat shit and die. You know, Clark's just like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk off. It's 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 all good. So Lois gets pissed that Clark is you know meek and mild. She walks off, tries to climb up the scaffolding to where ComLab One is, and falls and is caught by Peter Parker. Easy, Miss. I've got you. He says. Yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh. <laughs> So they compare resumes, you know, I'm Peter Parker, famous photographer, I'm Lois Lane, hot Daily Planet reporter, and they're soon joined by a very jealous Mary Jane, and the women have an amusing back and forth before Superman shows up and seemingly zaps both Mary Jane and Lois Lane, causing the two women to disappear. So Peter just wigs out and runs off to find a place to change into Superman, though a search for a phone booth proves fruitless as all of them are just the wall units now. But he gets to the roof, passing a shocked Clark Kent along the way, and launches himself into the sky when... To be continued, Scott Gardner's recap of this <laughs> chapter two. Man, I can't wait to find out what the hell happens. <laughs> I'm glad I'm getting that news from Scott Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> My one big note yeah. in this is that Clark Kent looks like he's drawn by six different artists. Yeah. Throughout the whole thing. It's like there's Wayne Boring and there's Kurt Swan and there's Neil Adams and whoever the hell is drawing him on that page where where Morgan Edge explains, you know, Kent, this is Tony Short, programming director for uh, for Ralston's Foods, the country's largest food chain. He wants to sponsor our coverage of the National Convention in Metropolis this year, but there's a snag. Tony doesn't want you. And, and Clark looks like he just cut one and is trying to, like, explain how <laughs> to get out of the room before it really starts sinking in. Well, plus... This I'm sorry. Tony Short guy looks like he's played by either Dick Cavett or Tommy <laughs> Smothers, one of the two. I'm not sure. And don't you line up like sponsorship for shit like this a little before the event actually happens? <laughs> it seems something like a, a, like a logistic thing that you would handle ahead of time. So you know, I well, probably good luck hauling Robert Walter Cronkite the day before an event too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I probably I probably come off seeming sometimes like I really hate this era of Superman or something, and I don't. I mean, this is the era of Superman that I grew up with. But I just got to say, now Morgan Edge, 
He's another one I'd like to see Superman fly up into space and throw <laughs> into the sun. Why the hell did they bring this guy back in modern Superman comics? He's another asshole. He treats super or treats Clark Kent like shit in this story. Yeah, he really? Yeah, does. you need those characters to do that. And I was just thinking about this. What about all those people that picked on Luther in high school? Are they all watching like Lex Luther, like when he takes over the world, going, "Oh fuck, man! <laughs> <laughs> I hope he doesn't remember me." <laughs> shit, man! I, I pushed his head into a toilet. I hit him with a snowball right in the forehead, man. I looked him right in the eyes while I did it. Fuck. Oh. What oh was I God. thinking? I, I like cut one and then stuck his face in my butt. What am I gonna do? <laughs> and while I was doing it, I said, "Remember me, Chris Honeywell. Remember my fart, Lex. You fucking bald-headed idiot." What was I thinking? <laughs> oh, you guys! <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So now I know that you had you had a, a couple of notes here, Michael, related to. Uh, to the the Superman the movie sort of seeming oh, yeah. tie-in. Um, this was released well over two years before Superman the movie. In fact, if you if this was released in January, it was almost three years. But when Lois falls, Peter Parker goes, "Easy, Miss, I've got you," mm-hmm. and that is Christopher Reeve's exact line. Right, no, Easy, Miss, I've got you. Right. And I almost expected her to say, "You've got me. Who's got, got you? you?" Yeah. <laughs> And then when he runs to find a phone booth, which Spider-Man never really changed in a phone booth, that was a really cool Superman thing that they're they're going to. Phone booths, worth of phone booths, and Clark Kent's like uh, over there, and it's you know there there's not any traditional phone booth anymore. It's like uh, Peter says, I forgot Ma Bell replaced most of the city booths with stalls over a year ago. And again, that freaking happens in the helicopter sequence, you know? Right. He runs out, sees that it's just that, you know, stall thing, and then runs to the um, revolving door, thus ensuring that my wife will be embarrassed to be in public with me when I see one. (laughs) I'm a dork. But no, it's just, it's just, it just struck me. I'm like, I'm not saying that they copied it, but it's just, that's really weird to me. Well, you know what this this chapter reminded me of? This Marvel team-up I have where it's Spider-Man meets uh, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you know, just everybody's interactions with each other, you know, they just mix everybody up, and it's pretty light for the most part, except for Superman blasting away right. the, two, the two girlfriends. Right. No, but it's been a long time since I've read that... Uh... That issue, but I know the one you're talking about, where uh, Superman and, or excuse me, Spider-Man and the, what do they call them? The not, not ready, ready for, for prime time yeah. players. There's yeah. even an NBC camera in the background when they're when they're both going to change their outfits. I think there's an NBC logo on the cover, if I remember right. I think they they were like required to put it there. I, oh, I'm pretty and if sure. I'm correct, that issue is not reprinted in the essential. Oh wow, that's I don't weird. Think it is. It's now, like if, why you won't see the Conan one reprinted in the Essential either. Now, wasn't Stan the host of SNL that night in yes. the comic? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Now, who the hell would Stan Lee be in the Marvel Universe? He's Stan Lee. Well, who would he be? He's the publisher of Marvel Comics. Yeah. Marvel Comics is the comic company that prints all the fictional adventures of Don't, the real yeah, that's, superheroes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I remember that during the burn run of FF. Yeah, 
Yeah. And 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 Captain America drew Captain America. <laughs> no, that you I remember not, that. No, no, that I don't remember. No, I just oh, they had surprised. Yeah, I don't remember. They had they had Pope John Paul comics. That's the same thing. And the uh, and the uh, what was her name? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa had a comic, and yep. uh, yeah, that Pope John Paul was like their best selling book of that year. So yeah, it that's why that's why it pisses me one. off that that Pope John Paul's not a playable character in that <laughs> Ultimate Alliance game. <laughs> and Mother Teresa, I'm serious, man. That would be awesome. It would be. I want a team where it's like Captain America, Iron Man, Pope John Paul II, and Mother <laughs> and Teresa, Hulk. and the Hulk, and you go up against like Max. <laughs> yeah. you know? I would fucking love that because all you would have to do. All you would have to do, literally, is just put the skin of the Pope over, like, say, Doc Strange. Yeah. he'd have essentially the same powers. Yeah, he'd and, be a little more cut than the Pope was, but yeah. then you'd take and, that for granted. And, and you know what the Pope's special ability would be? What's that? He could fucking take a bullet better than any other character <laughs> in that game. I swear to God. Oh... <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that one. Well, you know, they when when you when you fill up when you fill up the power meter, they get that one super special move, and his could literally be like a Monty Python esque hand down into the, <laughs> the screen. Yeah, just, just a finger there. Yeah, the yeah. finger of God comes down, touches your bad guy, and just fucking annihilates him. Yeah. There's just a crater left there. The one in the braces. He done it. Kroom. <laughs> oh, Does that man, mean I that the it. guy that shot John Paul would be like in the villain category too? Like, <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> like he got Magneto, and you got the Red Skull, the guy that shot Pope John Paul II, <laughs> and uh, who else? Oh, Loki. Yeah. <laughs> We've got legions of listeners going. So this is the new Mac to the Bay. <laughs> no, we got legions of listeners that are like, I wasn't even alive when that fucking thing happened. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. Yeah. All your listeners are like, I'm enraged at this bad talk about the Pope. <laughs> Keep the Pope alone, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Pope. Literally. See, Pope. Uh, uh, what is, where, where, I, I can't find Pope in the Mohatmu. Who the hell is this Pope guy they're talking about? <laughs> Did it's you say Mahatmu? What did, what did I say? I I don't know. Oh, Marvel Hot- Handbook of the yeah, well, that's it. Oh, Hotmu is what I meant. Oh, Hotmu. I've never heard it said like that. That's <laughs> it makes you cough. It's so rough on your vocal cords to say that. <laughs> Still so. getting over the fucking tuberculosis or whatever I caught there recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't fuck with Mother Teresa, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh man! All right. So anyway, do we have any more notes on chapter one? I'm pretty good. I'm I'm eager to find out what happens in in chapter two. That's for sure. It just, right. it, I, I think there's not a lot of notes because not a lot happened. Really? Yeah, think about it. Yeah, it's all set up at that point. I mean, chapter two is what people came to see. You know, bought the comic for. So, well, it's all about to pay off right now. So we got chapter two entitled. When Heroes Clash. Now, all of the chapters have been titled at this point with, with something similar to this, but this is, this is the big one. 
Alright, so, on a huge and glorious two-page splash spread, Spider-Man swings into action and finds himself face-to-face for the first time with the Man of Steel himself, Superman. And Superman says he's actually heard of Spider-Man, and he demands an explanation for what's happened or else. Superman rashly takes a swing at Spider-Man, who dodges easily, and as they both kind of circle the sky trying to find each other again and get at each other, nearby, Doc Ock and his new pal Lex Luthor, who is changing out of his Superman disguise, see, Lex Luthor was the fake Superman that zapped the girls, they decide to have a little fun with this scenario. Luther levels the playing field by zapping Spider-Man with a temporary charge of red sun radiation. So Superman and Spider-Man face off again, and just as Superman starts to tell Spidey that he thinks maybe they're getting off on the wrong foot, the suddenly mega-charged web-slinger belts him, but good. More stunned than hurt, though, Superman quickly recovers and comes flying back for more, only to get a two-footed spider kick to the face. Spider-Man assumes his uh, newfound strength which has actually enabled him to snap his own webbing in mid-swing, something he's never been able to do before, to be fueled by his enraged state of mind, and he continues to lay into the Man of Steel, commenting to himself how overrated this guy is. Now good and pissed, Superman dodges Spider-Man's next attack and hauls off to punch Spidey's face. Suddenly realizing that such a blow will actually more likely punch Spidey's ticket, Superman pulls his punch, but the shockwave still sends the wall crawler flying. Spider-Man recovers and comes at Superman with a spectacular acrobatic attack and prepares to do a double kick to the chest, Captain Kirk style, when guess what wears off. Spider-Man suddenly finds himself completely outmatched and outclassed, and after wearing out his strength and his knuckles trying to wear Superman down, the two heroes compare notes, realize they've been duped, call a truce, and a historic alliance and the first official DC Marvel superhero team-up of all time is forged. And that's Chapter 2. I'm glad you said first official, because Submariner and Aquaman did cross over with each other once. That's true, that's true. Well, I mean, also, I I specify what I tried to really point out more than first official DC Marvel crossover was a first official DC Marvel superhero team-up. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. What was that? Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, it was the Wizard of Oz. They both, basically, if I'm remembering... I forgot about that. Yeah. If I'm remembering the story correctly, they both ended up with the rights to it. Instead of arguing about it, they're just like, screw it, let's just both put it out. Right. Which, uh, I that is so hard to find, too. Didn't you used to have that, Chris? <sighs> you know, maybe I did. It seems very... From, as soon as he mentioned it, I... It, Instantly, the cover popped to my mind. It's very possible that I did. I think you did, because I know I've read it, and I can't think... I know I never owned it, and you're the only other person I could think of that, that may have had a copy when I was a kid, so I think you did have a copy of it. It's it's, it's very possible. But yeah, you know, mo- I, I see this all the time, wherever you go to, you know, where you can, like, look up facts about comics and stuff like that. I see it all the time that, that this book we're reviewing is... You know, the first DC Marvel thing of all, and it's not. It's it's the first, it's the big one. I mean, it's the one everybody yeah. knows. It's the first one, you know, where, where it was really an event and, you know, two of their characters, you know, met and fought and teamed up and all that. But as far as the first time the two companies collaborated, it, it's not. Wizard of Oz was first by, what, at least a year. Well, Co- more importantly, it's where the two 
icons of both universes met. Right. I mean, you know, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash, you know, Aquaman, all great characters. Uh, Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, mm-hmm. Thor, all iconic characters. But if you look at what DC and Marvel consistently marketed through the 60s, you know, DC at least, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and into the 80s, and then Marvel when it became apparent that, hey, Spider-Man's really freaking popular. These were the floats in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Right. These were the guys that, you know, it's issue three of your brand new hero title. You know, Superman or Spider-Man are swinging by to say hi, you know, and, and, and bring you like a like a like like some fruitcake or something. You know, it's like, welcome to the fold. So these two meeting, it, it almost had to happen. Right. You know, it, it took, you know, years and years of coordination. And I'm sure there was like a couple glad handing and probably some prostitutes involved. <laughs> oh, know, for sure. But to me, if these two had never met, I just, I just don't, I can't, I can't imagine that world where this book didn't happen. Right. Although, you know, although I, I agree with you completely, although there's still a number of meetups that seem just as much no-brainers that never did come to pass that still leave me scratching my head. For example, in, say, somewhere in that period between, like, 89... In like 92, how the hell did Batman and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles never meet up? How did or, they never do a crossover book with those two? Or two Daredevil properties? and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Or, or them, yeah. But I mean, sense. especially, you know, Batman was freaking huge in 89 with, with yeah. the movie and everything. And then the Turtles, that was like the height of their, you know, when they were really getting started. They had a movie like a year later that was huge and all that. I just, that's always stood out to me that those two properties never met up. It, it just boggles the mind, you know. And, it would have been uh, an interesting meetup. <laughs> or, you know, Superman himself. There's yeah. still a number of characters that Superman never met up with that, that kind of leave me scratching my head. You know, it was only a few years ago that they did that... Uh, Superman and Bugs Bunny thing, and then Superman no. and Mickey Mouse. How did Superman and Mickey Mouse never meet up? God, you know I, mean? I fucking hated that. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I mean, love that sentence. I can't believe I did. That. How did Superman and Mickey Mouse not ever meet up? They, no, live right, they live right next door to each other. <laughs> <laughs> right across the street from each other. What the fuck? I mean, yeah, it seems like thing. such a no-brainer, though, honestly, doesn't it? I mean, because... Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if it's still considered to be this way, but at one time, there were there were five characters that were considered to be, like, you know, the five most recognizable... What, what was it? Like, five most recognizable fictional characters in the world or something, and it was Superman, Mickey Mouse, Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, and who the fuck was the other one? Robin Hood, I think? I think so. I'll bet you Kirk and Spock and some of the Star Wars characters are catching up to Tarzan and Sherlock oh, Holmes yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that that was, you know, taken from, I don't know, yeah. from a few years back. You know, I think I read that in, like, I think I read that in that book you're always talking about, Mike, that uh, Superman from the 30s to the 70s. I think that's where I get that quote from. But Yeah, I th- Harlan Ellison has, has quoted it several times. Mm-hmm. In various essays as well, which is really all of Harlan Ellison I I ever want to read again. So <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the man's fiction. I love his essays, but his fiction leaves me cold most of the time. <laughs> now we're probably way off. Well, we're sort of off topic, but but what did we think of this uh, 
this particular chapter because I like it. Well, it's the best chapter in the whole thing because it's this is the money shot. This is the character. This is basically their fight. It's just a big fight, mm-hmm. and and the, there's they come up with a way to get Spider-Man powerful enough to make it a good fight at least for a little while. You mm-hmm. know. To where he has a fighting chance that you can really see the two of them knock each other around and they both get their licks in. Mm-hmm. And, but it's draw it's all drawn beautifully. It is. It's just very it's just it's classic. It's made to be classic. It's full of kapows and thooms and thoms and And, and each character gets a lick in that's just freaking epic. Right. Yeah. You know, you know, Sp- Spider Man, God, what page is this? Page fifty is just beautiful mm-hmm. of of Spider Man just cracking him one. But a couple pages later, there's another. You have to turn it sideways to really see it. But when he hits Spider Man with with basically a pocket of air, yeah, for lack of a better term, you know, Spider Man's going flying too. It's like. It reminds me of the animated World's Finest movie where the Bruce Tim Superman finally met the Bruce Tim Batman. Right. Mm-hmm. And Batman flips Superman. Right. And you're like, wow, Batman just owned him. But then 30 seconds later, Superman barrels in and slams him <laughs> with his shoulder. Breaks every bone in his body. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, I. and when I saw that, because, you know, I'm touchy about that kind of thing because... A lot of people like to dump on Superman, and he's flat out my favorite fictional character ever. Right. Me too. And I'm, and when people are like, oh, we're just going to make him, you know, we're going to knock him down because that's what you do to Superman. It's just like, yeah, <laughs> Bruce, Superman just told you to sit the fuck down. Right. Is, is what just happened. My only problem with this entire chapter is Superman's line I've heard reports about you. You better have an explanation for what you've done to my friend or take my word. You're going to be sorry. Superman should be the one guy that looks at Spider-Man and goes, he's not a bad guy. Right. You know, I I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Unfortunately, this always seems to happen in these type of things that Superman always comes across as, as overbearing as, uh, you know, like, well, you know, it's like what we've been talking about on, on the JSA Well, he's podcast. like an he's... official superhero. Right, he's exactly. He's like sanctified superhero. <laughs> I've, I've got my superhero license. Where's your Spidey? You're a vigilante. Right, right. And, and this happens a lot when Superman appears out of his own title, you know, where, where he's not the center guy. A lot of times he's interpreted to be kind of like the dick. He, he comes across like, "Well, I'm Superman," you know, and uh, uh. and you know, the it doesn't bother me so bad in this. Maybe because I've read it for so many years that that you know it, it's lost that edge or whatever. But where it does occur to me and drives me freaking crazy is in the JLA Avengers crossover. Superman is just plain out a fucking asshole in that book. I mean, he gives the Avengers shit from word one. And it's no surprise at all when when Thor finally just has enough and decks him because he he pretty much had it coming. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I can sort of see what you're getting at in this. He almost does have it coming with Spider Man because he does come across you know right out of the gate as as being you know I, I, he is a little bit out of character I think. But at the same rate, 
you know, he just saw Lois Lane get zapped and all that, so maybe he's not quite in his, his right head about it or something. Um, page 58, anybody really uncomfortable by Spider-Man saying, how'd you get so hard so suddenly? Yeah, I noticed that too. Uh, just makes me uncomfortable. Now, I had always heard, you know, the, the, the I don't know if it's a rumor, if it's supposed to really be true or what, but I had always heard that the Neil Adams work in this book was Superman heads, that he had redrawn a lot of Superman heads and a lot of Superman faces. But on page 47, the big page, you know, the big shot of Superman there facing off with Spider-Man, on page 48, where he's flying away from Spider-Man, and then where he's getting decked on page 50, those are all Neil Adams, Superman bodies, or I'll eat my hat. I, I, I will agree with you there. It's especially page 48. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, once again, it's got that Gene Colony sort of style, you know? Right. The very yeah. super fluid right. and airy... Yeah, because because yeah, uh, yeah, because Ross Andrew. I mean, I'm lo- I love it. Don't get me wrong, but Ross Andrew is not. He's a little bit stiffer, and uh, he's got a little bit of the touch of the Dick Dillon in him, as compared to. Uh, I'm going to disagree with that a little bit, just because of all the exciting Spider-Man work he's done. Oh no, no, no I'm talking strictly just about his Superman. Oh, so oh, Superman. Okay, like, I'm like, sorry. Look, I misunderstood what you were saying. On page 50 and 51, now look at Superman getting hit on page 50. It's it's very anatomically correct. It's very fluid. It's very natural looking. Yeah. How he's kind of falling out of the sky as he's being clobbered. But then look at Superman being hit, being kicked in the face by Spider-Man on page 51 yeah, and I see what I see exactly. Almost, it's very stiff, but it, it, doesn't that almost look like it could be a Dick Dillon right out of, like, Justice League? No, because there's not, like, 16 people on the page. So. <laughs> but I see your point. I really right. do. Right. So, yeah, that, to me, that's that's one of the greatest examples in this entire book that, that different artists are playing with. with right. Well... Well, that last page where they're shaking hands, it's like Superman's, you know, suddenly like the doughy jock guy. Hey, Spider-Man, we gotta shake hands now. Yeah. He's just so freaking big. He looks a little bit out of proportion somehow to me. Like like somehow his his neck is pushed in. He reminds his me whole of that... upper torso is a little distorted, yeah. yeah. He reminds me of an action figure the kids used to have where you could push Superman's head down. And put like a fake like Clark Kent disguise over top of the, the figure. <laughs> That's what it looks like to me. Nice. You know the one I'm talking about, Mike? I think I do. <laughs> it's creepy. It is creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I got for this chapter. We ready for the next one? Oh, that's me, huh? It is you. Okay. Now, I just have to mention, I just love the way this chapter starts with Spider-Man on his web skis being towed behind Superman. It's just like, I don't know if that's aerodynamically correct, but I like it. (laughs) So, uh, Superman and Spider-Man trace the villains to the old Penn Station rail yard. And, of course, they avoid the requisite bunch of deadly traps and find Luther and Ock sort of at the end of a hallway mocking them with a video screen showing their imprisoned girlfriends. 
And, uh, of course, you know, once they attack them, they're just a hologram. But uh, Superman and Spidey, you know, sort of tear the place apart. And after a computer explodes and Superman puts it back together, they find out that the transmission came from Mount Kilimanjaro, which sounds suspiciously like the place where you would put a supervillain hideout. I don't know about you, but sounds very suspicious. Kilimanjaro? Yeah. Yeah. So Superman flies them there, quote-unquote, in minutes with Spider-Man towed behind on web skis, which is, we'll, we won't talk about the physics of that and how Spider-Man's meat should have probably just been pulled off of his body by the <laughs> friction of the air and his you know arms yanked out of their sockets as they held onto the web. But anyway, that's how it happened, because they're there and they're fine. And uh, they get there and, and befriend the the Maasai tribe, and uh, and they actually find one Maasai member who's actually educated, you know, and sort of plays against stereotype by speaking perfect English. Anyway, they they get a guide to go with them to uh, Kilimanjaro, and uh, when 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 they get there, they find the entrance to what appears to be the secret hideout of Luther, and uh, they try to enter it and. The Messiah warrior all of a sudden attacks him with a sword that's laced with red sun radiation. And of course they subdue him uh, by using Superman's heat vision to uh, harden Spidey's web as he webs him around the guy. And uh, then they descend into Luther's giant underground Kilimanjaro lair. And that's it for chapter three. I like this chapter. I really do. It. it I don't. Yeah, it, no, it's a weird direction. Let me tell you, it is really weird, and that's kind of what I like about it. it it's kind of got a strange, silver agey, wacky sort of thing. Like, what the hell was the whole thing with Africa and and all <laughs> yeah. that about? But I like it. But there's one part that really drives me a little bit nuts. When I thought it, it occurred to me for the literally for the first time today, as I was rereading this and getting my notes in preparation. Now, at first it bugged me because, all right, it's the moment where Superman entertains the, the chief of the tribe and proves that he's got superpowers by, by literally jugging all of these, uh, whatever the hell you call them, these, these warrior warriors. guys, right? So they're invited into like the chief's hut, and they're all sitting around, and the guy offers them a drink, and he says, please... Take a drink with us, Superman. It's our finest food, a mixture of milk and cattle blood. And Superman's doing like, no, no, thank you. (laughs) He's putting his hand up, right? All right. If Indiana Jones has taught me one thing is that you don't. That's a great offense. Yeah, exactly. You know, how do they know that all of a sudden that, you know, these people aren't going to go to war with America or something? (laughs) Right, right. Superman (laughs) flies away and they're like, what a fucking asshole. We killed that cow for him. Right, you know, like, our best cow. He was Superman. We killed our best fucking cow for him, and he made us just pour it out on the ground because right. nobody else could drink that cup. It was for him. What a fucking prick! Right now, like three, you know, three. And he families, did it with a smile on his face. Right, and three families in this tribe just died of starvation now because they gave up their food. Yeah, and exactly. Turned them down. All right, that's point one. And, and, and at least the other guy, he had no mouth, so we can understand why he wouldn't right. drink the blood right it's funny you say that because that's exactly what i was going to say is that spider-man i would give a pass to because he could just simply say well you know got no mouth or whatever i'm a no mouth creature i do not eat (laughs) right all right that's point one that was the one that occurred to me right away when i saw this 
Here's the one that occurred to me today. All right, this is a mixture of milk and cattle blood. And Superman, you know, he's very much got the look on his face. He's got the raised eyebrows. He's holding his hand up. He's doing like, no, 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 thank you. Wait a minute. This is the same fucking guy that I have seen suck up oil spills and toxic poison and waste and nuclear You're right. waste and everything. What the hell is he balking about? You can't tell me that a mixture of milk and cattle blood tastes worse than a, a tanker full of petroleum, okay? Those other Maasai warriors seem to be enjoying the hell out of it. I'd just like to point that out. It can't be because he's worried that it's not going to taste good, Okay. And really, Superman would not even get through one round of, like, Fear Factor? Is that what they're saying here? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty lame. Did he not eat a chunk of kryptonite not long before this story came out? Yeah, it was... uh, Oh, that's right. Superman number 233, when all the kryptonite on Earth was turned to lead. He he said it's a little... I can see the two or three thing where he's like, oomph, 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 oomph. Salt. Oh, pretty, yeah, it needs salt. salt. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so I think I've made my case. So I mean, it's, it's basically like like when you go over to your great aunt's house, and she's right. got like that hard candy from nineteen uh, like thirty two. <laughs> it's all bunched together. She's like, "Would you like some?" Ca-? No, 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 no. Really, really. She's got like fifteen cats, and she's cleaning out the boogers in the corner of the cat's eyes, and she grabs your piece of bread and starts putting <laughs> peanut butter on it. Would you like a peanut butter sandwich? Oh, and she's already making it, and it's just like, "Oh God, <laughs> sure." Um, the loaf of fruit cake that you could use to chalk an airplane's tires. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, I've got, I've got three notes. Uh, one, I think the Africa scene completely just brings the story to a <laughs> screeching halt. It's like we got to save Lois and Mary Jane. We've got to say, oh, let's juggle people, and let's just hang out because they're hanging out. Superman's just sitting. He's lounging. He's got his. He's like kind of kicked back. Like we're just gonna, we're just gonna sit here and we're gonna, we're gonna make nice with these people. Shouldn't have this been have been Wakanda? Yeah, I was thinking that when I read the chief's name, and what was his name, like, Nachaka or something, yeah, I thought, I was like, why the hell didn't they just make this Wakanda? Yeah, T'Challa, that would have been great. Yeah, that would have been cool. Uh, I like how s- humble Superman is at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. He's now Superman to me. You know, right. Spider-Man's, like, complimenting him, and he's like, no, 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 it's cool. You know, you do your thing. You know, you've got a part to play in this, too. And he's not being a prick or, like, condescending about it, either. And, you know, he's consistently validating Spider-Man throughout the entire thing. It's just great. Uh, Even on page 66, where Neil Adams obviously drew that smiling Superman. Are you you talking about the part where he lets Spider-Man go into the building first? No, there was something he said. I was vamping for time, but... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, here, right here. Wow, the things you can do with X-ray vision. Don't you ever stun yourself, Soup's old boy. And he's like, actually, no. <laughs> it never occurred to him to be impressed with his own abilities. Right. Right. Until that moment when he became an arrogant bastard. <laughs> it's all Spider-Man's fault. Yeah. You just, you just uh, read that and reminded me of something that I completely failed to make a note of that I did want to mention in this is Spider-Man violates one of Scott's rules of reading a Superman comic. Don't fucking call him Supes. I hate that shit. That <laughs> describes me. Spider-Man's when, the only one that can do it. When 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 somebody calls Superman Supes 
or Batman Bats. I fucking hate that shit. It drives me absolutely crazy. But I'm and now gonna... you're telling them all what yeah, to do. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Now there'll be legions of assholes just trying to wind me up now. Let's, let's well, all I have to do is say Dark his... Knight was the greatest superhero film ever, and that'll wind your shit up pretty quick. No, it so. doesn't, actually. I just chalk them immediately into the idiot category. <laughs> what you should start doing right now is eating carbon, because you'll be crapping diamonds by the end. <laughs> Eating lightning and crap and thunder. Um, now, this would be probably the greatest comic book ever published if on page 71 you could retool the art just a little bit at the top, take Spider-Man completely out of, of that panel for just a moment, and where Superman is just l- just lasering his heat vision at this guy, if his head was aflame... <laughs> I would love that shit, man. <laughs> That's actually my third note, is I like the fact that they're using his heat vision and Spider-Man's webbing. These are the two iconic things associated with these characters. Mm-hmm. You know, of what the, uh, of crap that comes out of bodily orifices. Right. I mean, yeah, Superman flies, and he's super strong. Spider-Man is very agile, and he sticks to walls, and he's strong too. But Spider-Man has the webbing, and Superman has the heat vision, and they found a way to integrate both that makes them both more interesting, I think. Right. All right, are we ready for Chapter 4? Chapter 4. The the (laughs) Doomsday Decision. Um, It's me again as Superman and Spider-Man find an empty rocket silo. Luther and Doc Ock head to the Injustice Gang satellite, complete in an Injustice Gang spaceship, where they put their little symbol on the side of the ship. <laughs> you know, every time I see that, I think of the decals. Right. Like <laughs> the Star Wars and G.I. Joe toys of my youth. Right. And, it, and it turns out that Luther not only stashed the, 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 the girls, the broads, uh, <laughs> Uh, on this satellite that the Injustice gang used to use. And I love the fact that (laughs) Luther blames their uh, inability to defeat the Justice League with, unfortunately, without my criminal genius to guide them, they were quickly defeated by forces of good. (laughs) So he just took over their ship. But this is also where he hid the little scientific doohickey that he stole from Star Labs. We cut to a one-page interlude where we find out what booze hounds uh, Morgan Edge and J. Jonah Jameson are. (laughs) Especially J.J. He goes, a small one, Scotty. No, on second thought, make it a large one and hold the water. So basically, he just wants a giant glass of scotch or something. (laughs) And they basically compare notes on how much they hate the people that work with them. That's pretty much the point of this scene. And they uh, they see... <laughs> I'm sorry. This is a really bizarre transition. One second they're walking down a city street, and then it looks like they're in NORAD, watching the, rocket t- the satellite take off into space. And in a really neat two-page spread... We see the people controlling the satellite, you know, going through their paces, and then we see Lex Luthor taking it over. The satellite hits the Earth with a laser, which causes wild weather to hit Middle America. Superman is concerned that if the laser isn't stopped, the weather might cause a chain reaction until Earth's ecology is knocked off balance. 
but Superman himself is knocked off balance by Ultra High Sonics, while Spider-Man, who's been piloting another spacecraft and apparently doing a bang-up job of it, despite never having driven one before. Does Peter Parker even have a driver's license? He had the Spider-Mobile. Yeah, but that's... <laughs> I think anybody can drive a Dune boat. I think this Spider-Mobile, Lexor 7, what's what's the difference? This thing has the standard video game controls, like, on the right and left, and, like, forward, you know, go and stop. Uh, Was the 2600 even out when this comic came out? I don't think so. I I think think it was just being developed. Yeah. So Superman is knocked out by the Ultra High Sonics while Spider-Man lapses into unconsciousness. Uh, when the life support on the ship he was piloting is knocked out as well. They wake up, and basically, Luther explains that all of this huge plan, proving that this is indeed a big-budget movie Lex Luthor, uh, that all he really wanted to do was get control of the satellite and blackmail the governments of the Earth with giving them really, really bad weather. And the two heroes lash out at their enemies, and and Luther quickly disengages the artificial gravity to kind of throw them off balance. And at first, Spider-Man and Superman don't do so hot in the battle, but soon they work together in true team-up fashion, and the fight soon turns in their favor. Seeing that a giant tsunami is about to hit what looks to be Middle America, and thus proving that Roland Emmerich read this comic before sitting down to write the day after tomorrow, Superman flies out of the satellite to take care of the tsunami. Now, Spider-Man turns Doc Ock against Lex Luthor. Superman takes care of the tidal wave via a sonic boom. Spider-Man actually lands a good one on Lex Luthor. It's a neat little panel. Afterwards, when everything is wrapped up, they talk about the battle and Luthor's ego and Superman and Spider-Man part as friends. Yay! That's that's basically how it ends. It's uh, yeah. kind of a weak ending. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I like it. It's uh, But yeah, I, I think... It's by it, the books. Yeah, it is. It, I, I think it does suffer a bit at the end with, with the reveal of exactly what the whole plot, you know, what, what Luther's whole scheme was and all that. For one thing... I don't think Superman the movie is the only thing that that stole things from this. I think uh, the thing with the weather satellite isn't this right out of Superman three. Yeah, I think you're right. But I, it's just, just... I just read the hurricanes over a landmass, and I thought Roland Emmerich. <laughs> well, I'm trying to see how many times I can say the name Roland Emmerich before Chris finally just fucking. <laughs> He's snaps. trying to wind you up, man. Slowly I turn, step by step, <laughs> inch by inch, foot by foot. Well, two other uh, quick notes I've got in this chapter. All right, it, this is not really so much a, a knock against this issue as it is in all superhero comics everywhere, just about every issue ever published. Okay, supervillains, how many fucking times do I have to say this? If you manage to knock your hero out, shoot him in the fucking head! Kill them that instant. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Unceremoniously I mean, gangster style. I mean, Spider-Man was already losing air and blacking out. Why the hell would they rescue him? Why would they rescue him and bring him to their secret headquarters and, and let him revive and kick their asses? Well, he's would- going there to try to get in. He blacks out in space, and then they bring him where he wants to be. Right. Why not just let him plummet into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up like a comet or whatever the hell? You know, why, why save him? He was already dying. 
Superman 2, for that matter, I mean, now granted, he, I, I don't think he'd die out there in space, but he was just floating out there unconscious in space. Yeah. If I bring either one of these guys into your headquarters, explain your whole plan, let them revive and get their wits back about them just so that they can beat your ass. Why would well, you do that? Doc Ock's an idiot for right. the most part. And Luther's just egomaniacal. So I think to both of them, it really would be like, this is what we need to do. You know, the the only time I've ever seen a supervillain act any kind of with any kind of rationality about this was in that episode of Justice League, where we meet the injustice uh, the Injustice League for the first time, and they've got Batman, and the Joker just says very simply, "Look, I fought this guy before. This is what you need to <laughs> this is what you need to do. Right. Kill him now. Right? <laughs> Don't wait." <laughs> <laughs> Which begs the question, well, hot shot, why didn't you do it? But still, it was a cool scene. Right. It's a uh, nice, uh, nice bit of art on page uh, 83 there. It, it looks, again, that Doc Ock getting slammed right there looks a lot to me like that may be a Neil Adams Doc Ock, but it's hard to tell. Well, I think where Spider-Man's punching Luther, that's a Neil Adams looking something about the top of Luther's head in that. Yeah. Shot. Is yeah. anybody uncomfortable by the fact that basically Doc Ock is taken out of the fight because his glasses break? <laughs> <laughs> now yeah, I can like relate to this. Twilight Zone it... episode. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to have time. Or uh, yes, what's your yes. name? <laughs> Thelma from Scooby Doo. That's how Thelma was always taken out too. Oh, that's right. All right, now I could be mistaken. I regrettably I'm not as up on my Spider-Man lore of this time period as I probably need to be. But if I'm not mistaken, you know, for one thing they do refer to Doc Ock's arms in the origin story as Doc Ock's telepathic arms. So wasn't this a period where they were basically wired into him and part of his body? Yeah, because when he's in the jail cell, he's sitting there with the arms attached to him. So I'm thinking that uh, after page 83, there should be at least one panel of him screaming in agony and saying, you son of a bitch, you ripped my fucking arms off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he did. Superman ripped... That's what I would his yell. arms off, and and he's there's nothing. And I'm I'm positive I've read at least one Spider-Man story where Spider-Man ripped one of his arms out, and he he was taken out at that moment because of the pain, the well, pain, you know. In all honesty, Scott, though, looking at page eighty-three, he's pretty much unconscious at this point. Anyway, yeah, that's true. He just got he's hitting the ground by he, Superman. <laughs> um. 80, page eighty four. Does it is it me or does Luther look like he's going for like the touchdown catch? <laughs> <laughs> no, really, Doc. Throw long. I just, just oh god, broken glasses. Really? <laughs> I mean, I've been taken out by broken glasses. I mean, uh, earlier this year, actually, my glasses broke and I was without glasses for about a week and a half. So I can kind of feel his pain, but God, he's such a whiner about it. Now, this thing with the uh, the giant wall of water, the giant tidal wave, comes up again Tsunami. at least one other time, and I'm thinking it may be Miracle Monday, the novelization Miracle Monday. is isn't. Have you ever read that, Michael? I just bought it. 
off of eBay for like two bucks. So I will be sitting down and reading it because I liked the first one. Uh, Last Son? Last Son of Krypton. I was a big fan of that. That's good, but Miracle Monday to me is is way, way better. And I, I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I've read that. So uh, when, when you read that, you have, to, you have to let me know if I was right on that or not. But I, I it seems to me that there's a really in-depth description of Superman both doing what he does here, which is, you know, he sets up basically a, you know, he breaks the sound barrier and uses that shock wave to basically nullify the the wave of water. But he also uses his heat vision on like, you know, max temp to like blast massive holes in the, in the wave of water. And then he basically evaporates huge chunks out of it and stuff until it just kind of settles down. And I'm pretty sure that's where that, that happens at, is in that Miracle Monday book. That's a really wouldn't, good book. Wouldn't there be some side effect of all that water vapor being put into the atmosphere also? Well, it's 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 my considered opinion that, that ultimately superheroes are responsible for global warming in the uh-huh. long run. <laughs> this it's is their, what the scientists their, don't talk about. It's right? their farts. <laughs> <laughs> Just ungodly amounts of carbon dioxide and uh, um, methane. Is anyone uncomfortable that we don't get a proper handshake, but the, you know, the very cool hand clasp at the end there? I don't know. There's something about it. And shouldn't Spider-Man's hands still be broken? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. At least they're not pointing their fingers at each other, too. That That would be a bridge too far away. So wrapping the whole thing up with the epilogue, 20 minutes later, Clark Kent and Peter Parker meet up with Morgan Edge, J. Jonah Jameson, Lois Lane, and Mary Jane in a nearby restaurant where Kent presents Edge with exclusive film footage and Parker presents Jameson with exclusive pics of the Superman-Spider-Man event in Columbus Circle. Kent and Parker greet each other, both commenting on how both were apparently in the same place covering the same event, yet neither saw the other. Jameson and Edge spring for Parker and Kent to take their ladies to dinner, and this epic history-making tale ends very happily with Pete and MJ and Clark and Lois walking arm in arm in arm in arm. The end. Well, here's the big thing here is that I always had the impression, right, right from reading this as a kid, that there's a bit of a, a, of a wink and a nod there that possibly clark and peter realize who each other are what, what do you guys think about this? i think superman him? would at least figure it out because of seeing maybe a spider-man suit under peter's street clothes or something or yeah that's detecting true. a higher heart rate or something like that yeah i don't know oh yeah they, it's like it seems like we covered the same event parker that i don't recall seeing you there i stick to the shadow cans apparently just like you <laughs> Maybe. Not, not wink, wink. It is possible. Yeah, just the look that Peter's got. I mean, I, maybe it's just the way he's drawn, but it, it looks like he's specifically given him that look. Like he may be saying, "I think I, I think I got your number." You know what I mean? He also looks like Archie Andrews. Yes, he does. A different haircut. I mean, what I want is like the thought balloons of them all walking off to lunch together or dinner together. You know, Peter's like, I'm on top of the world. My hands hurt like hell, but I got to save the day with Superman. And Lois is like, wonder how I'm going to spin this into a story. And Clark's like, I think steak fries would be good tonight. And Mary Jane has to be thinking, this man 
for a mild-mannered reporter has rock-hard arms. Oh, my God. <laughs> does, does he work out? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's not as bad as uh, Glory. Gloria Grant wanting to jump his bones in the next one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. God, I haven't read that one in a long time. Well, we can go ahead and tease right now that we are going to uh, mm-hmm. we are going to review in a, in another upcoming episode. We'll we'll go ahead and do uh, what is that? It's Marvel Treasury Edition twenty eight or something like that. Isn't that what that's something called? Like that. It's yeah. it's uh, Superman and Spider Man, not Superman versus the Amazing Spider Man. So, and it's got a it's got a pretty decent cover on the second one. Unfortunately. It's like, did did they just have like a random number generator to decide who the villains were going to be in the second one? Oh, save save that though. Table that discussion because okay, I, okay, def- okay. I definitely okay. want to get into that. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, because because to this day, because that was you know some of my earliest comics. You know, when, when I was really starting to get serious about collecting comics. The the villain that represents the the Marvel side of the story in that one, I kind of put him in. I consider him more a Spider Man villain than whose villain he actually is because of that story. So yeah, that'll be interesting to talk about when we get there. Well, that was the other thing I wanted to talk about is just kind of the the legacy of this book, you know, of, mm-hmm. of this particular crime. I mean, it it really kicked off quite the thing. I mean, a lot spun out of this. You know, we we got... Well, what was the very next one? It was the Batman Hulk one, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, that one's awesome. And I, would, I wouldn't mind doing that one somewhere down the road, too. Have you guys both read that one? I believe uh, I, just, I have a copy of that one somewhere, I think. I reread it on Christmas Day. Oh, wow. I have a reprint. See, I bought all the reprints uh, when they did DC versus Marvel because I had never read them. Uh, I managed to track down for about ten bucks the original Superman and Spider-Man, the second team up, uh-huh. uh, which I'm looking at right now, uh, and I and I really need to get the first one as well. And uh, I, w- I was, if I would have had a little bit more money, I would have gotten a really moderately priced version of the Batman and Hulk one. But I think we should do that one too down the road. Well, see what I like about these is, I mean, I like the giant oversized books anyway, and I really mm-hmm. miss them. However, most of them didn't feature much, if any, sometimes original content. So they weren't playing to their size all the time, which right. They this, were a re- reprints with some splash pages with some art character art on them. Right. Whereas this book very specifically plays to the fact that it's huge and massive, and and the art portrays that. So then you get like all those weird perspective shots, and you get you know the, those great shots of like Spider Man throwing himself off the Empire State Building and stuff right. like that. You know things that work, you know that that may work in the regular comic size, but they're not going to be as spectacular and dynamic and and full of all this intricate detail because. You know, when it's going to be blown up to this massive size, then you know the background guys really got to do their homework to fill every little detail in, and I love that. I, you know, that opening splash of Superman attacking the robot—it's like looking at an old-timey photograph. I mean, everything is there. It's—it's it's not one of these things where you can just get away with like a simple 
purple cloudy background. I mean, it's got to be super detailed because it's massive. I love that. Well, you know, I think one of the things about this one in particular, and and and, and the next time they meet up, but this one since it was the first, is they really gave us a cinematic feeling uh, comic book. And I say that on two levels. One, it is so big. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very dynamic. It's very iconic. Right. Everything happening in here represents the best of the of both of the characters. And you get to see their secret identities and their girlfriends and such. All right, granted, $10 billion is a hell of a chunk of change, especially in 1976. I understand that, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I understand that that's quite a lump. However, Lex Luthor cannot be fucking strapped for cash. I mean, take the goddamn giant robot to the scrap metal dealer for one thing. He's got a giant fiddler crab, you know, hawk the fucking, sa- you know, the injustice gang satellite in the, in the spaceships, the Kilimanjaro, place you know that that could go for a, a hefty sum on fuck man just sell the tools and and uh, building equipment you use to build the kilimanjaro base yeah no, yeah, no doubt yeah. i mean he, he could make 10 billion dollars off of the fucking patents for all this shit you know so, yeah yeah well you know i i actually for kind of forgot or maybe just glossed over the whole blackmail scheme i was taking it more that he was just like i fucking hate everybody so i'm just gonna wipe out the earth <laughs> uh, that's actually the the approach i was looking at it more was like he finally got his hands on this satellite that would do the job that he always wanted to do which was he just wants to kill everybody you know because that's that's how spider-man gets yeah <laughs> doc ock to turn against i gotta him. live there too yeah yeah exactly it's my planet too you know <laughs> yeah, I, I will agree that, that the final reveal at the end of exactly what the, the big scheme is, is is pretty weak. And see, this is why Green Goblin couldn't have been the villain, because the second the Green Goblin figured out that Luther was going to destroy the planet, he would have gotten a freaking Goblin glider in the back. <laughs> 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 Though the, 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 the team-up they, they missed out on, especially in the 90s, when they brought Norman back, was the business industrial Lex Luthor teaming up with the business industrial Norman Osborn. That could have been very interesting. That, that, uh, that, that could have been neat. Apparently at one point, Roger Stern had pitched a crossover between Superman and Spider-Man that he would have written. Uh, but it just came it, it just came down at a time when they stopped doing that sort of thing. But how awesome would that have been? I think that actually would have been awesome... If Superman and Spider-Man um, had taken a not a back seat necessarily, but but somehow their their plot wasn't necessarily the A plot. That the the A plot was more of not Luther, you know, businessman Luther teaming up with businessman Norman Osborn. But the two of them actually they were the the two that were at war with each other. That the that the, awesome. the tension of the story came down to it was two warring businessmen. Yeah, and, that actually that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I think and you know if you could somehow spin the tension of that into Superman and Spider Man being brought together and possibly even brought into conflict, I think that could have been really cool. Ooh, and drawn by John Byrne. 
Oh, hell yeah. With Roger Stern writing. That could have been freaking <sighs> awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's also, you know, let's also, what are some of the other? I mean, there there have been so many. Unfortunately, a lot of them have not, I think, met their potential. But there were some that were that were pretty good. You know, you just spoke of uh, Roger Stern, you know, Superman and the Incredible Hulk. Hulk. Oh, that man, drawn by Steve Rude. Yeah, that was a good one. That was oh, really man, yeah, and it was the it was the Man of Steel era Superman, mm-hmm. and the Hulk before he was impossibly strong, right? So it made the battle more interesting because it was just two really strong guys whacking the hell out of each other, mm-hmm. and Rude drew it like a Kirby book, mm-hmm. so it had that feel of the seventies era. Jack Kirby Superman in the in the sixties era Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've actually I liked I haven't read it in years, but I really liked the Green Lantern Silver Surfer crossover, mm-hmm. where Kyle Rayner meets the Silver Surfer, and it leads directly into DC versus Marvel. The one I'm going to a- ask if you've read, if you've all read, is the Galactus New Gods. Uh, crossover that John Byrne wrote and drew. Dark Side Galactus. Yeah, Dark Side Galactus. I've yeah. heard of it. I've never, I've never read it. I'd love to though. I bet you it's awesome. It, it's got an ending that makes perfect freaking sense. I've so got to reread that because I do own it and I have read it and I literally can't remember a goddamn thing that happens in it. I, I remember being underwhelmed by it, but that's my sole memory of reading uh, that. I really liked really liked the ending. Uh, speaking of oversized crossovers, the DC and Marvel did it again in the in 1998-99 with Superman meeting the Fantastic Four. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, drawn by Dan Jurgens. Oh, it was awesome. I have that and still haven't read it. I don't know what's really? taking me so long to read it. I, yeah, I, I, I've owned it since it came out and just somehow just never made the time to read it. Yikes. The one moment in that book that will always stand out to me is I'm not going to give any way any plot points because it has a really interesting plot point involving Galactus and Krypton. But uh, when we're introduced to the Fantastic Four in the story, Ben Grimm is lifting this impossibly heavy thing. And Franklin Richards runs in to tell him about this neat thing he saw on the latest episode of the Superman animated series. And yeah. Ben Grimm's all into it. And it's just like, oh, that's great. <laughs> that See, ben you like that, Superman. really? Yeah. See, that that was I part like that. of what drove me crazy. See, I mean, I have flipped through the book. I just haven't ever, like, sat and actually read it, you know, cover to cover. But I, I kind of sort of like that, but I'm, I kind of don't, too, because it makes Superman a fictional character in Marvel's world, you know? and I, And I don't think that it necessarily reciprocates i don't think that it that it goes you know that swings the the other way you know to where the ff is a fictional thing in in superman's world and and i think that's kind of goofy anyway if it if it did but also it drove me a little bit nuts that after the first dc marvel you know that dc versus marvel event there were there were tons and tons of 
team-ups and crossover books that came out. You know, the the Batman Punisher ones, and Batman Daredevil, Batman and Spider-Man. A lot of them were Batman-related. And every single one of them seemed to have its own rules. There were some of them, like Batman and Spider-Man, where they existed in the same world, just like the book we just talked about, you know? And then there were other ones where some hoops had to be jumped through because they existed in two different universes. And none, of, nothing was consistent. They, they never had a consistent, here's how it works. And even I, in the DC Marvel event itself, they existed in two different universes, and, and a lot of hoops had to be jumped through to, to get everybody to, to meet up. You know, it's kind of funny because I like the Punisher as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like him when he's handled in a very specific way. You talked in a in a previous ish episode of Back to the Bins about the first issue of the Marvel Max series. Yeah, and you and I had the exact same visceral reaction to that first issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, the exact same reaction. It shocked the hell out of me, as a matter of fact. But what I love is in the first Punisher Batman crossover, he meets up with Jean Pavali. Yeah, uh, the guy that took over for Bruce Wayne when Bane broke his back, and they kind of worked together because Jean Paul Valley was a little harder edged of a hero. You know, he, he's he's not going to be mowing people down, but I don't think he would stop Frank Castle if that's what Frank was gonna was gonna do. But in the second one, it's Bruce Wayne. It's after this, Punisher walks up like, "Hey, what's?" and Batman punches him in the face. <laughs> and it's just like I'm taking you in, and I'm like, "Yep, that's what Bruce Wayne would freaking do." Mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne would see the Punisher and not see, "Hey, he just killed a bunch of criminals." He would say, "Hey, that guy's mowing people down. He's getting taken down." And I'm sorry, I like Frank Castle. I'm sure he's a badass. Batman's owning him all over that alleyway. <laughs> that's just my opinion. That's my that's my fanboy reaction to that <laughs> to that scenario. No, you're absolutely right, though. In the '90s. In the 90s, they kind of ruined the concept. Yeah. Because because DC versus Marvel, as much as as much affection as I have for that series, because it represents a particular time in my collecting life and everything that was surrounding it, and it was hyped, and it was, you know, it was neat. There were some really cool moments. I loved when Aquaman took out Namor and basically said, stop fucking whining. Right. And you had... And you had Thor fighting Captain Marvel, and the, in the in the Carnival Barkers on one side you had Rick Jones, and on the other side you had Snapper Carr. Right. Though there was a crossover, and I think it was in both Our Man and in the Captain Marvel series that Peter David wrote because they were coming out at the same time, mm-hmm. where they were on, where Snapper and Rick were on the phone with each other. Ah. Uh, one of those really subtle crossovers, but. When they did that and then followed it up with Amalgam and followed it up with, you know, all of these different crossovers, it just watered down the concept. It wasn't as special. Right. You know, you know I'm, I'm not one of these people that needs to have a Jets versus Shark mentality between DC and Marvel because I can I can kind of float between the two universes. Though I prefer DC, it's not like if I see a guy reading a Marvel comic, I'm going to walk up and hit him in the back of the head with yeah, a baseball hey, what's bat. What's your fucking problem, asshole? With, uh, <laughs> I, I just picture Chris sitting in the in, in the car with some Coke bottles on his fingers going, Avengers! Yeah, clink, 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 clink. But, 
But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm sorry. When these universes meet, it should be a big deal, which is why with the one or two problems I had with JLA Avengers, I think they did it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of Superman being a complete douchebag and not having enough of a fight between Captain America and uh, and Batman. I think that should have happened. There should have been at least a page. <laughs> right. Not just them looking at each other, you know, like trying to throw a, you know, like fainting a punch and then going, oh, let's go figure out what's going on. Yeah, I, I, I've never been happy with that at all. I think that was... I mean, I like the book, don't get me wrong. I, I, I enjoyed it and everything, but uh, part of the problem with that is no matter how spectacular that book had been, you know, by the time it came out, we had waited, what, 20-something 20 years, like 23 years or something for that book to come out. Nothing can live up to that amount of hype. No, Nothing. Not yeah, and, and, and expectation. I mean, just look at, you know, look at Phantom Menace, you know. That movie could have been the most spectacular thing ever set to film, but just simply the fact that it was, you know, from 1983 to 19, whatever the hell year that came 99. out, 99. That's a that's just way too long a period for, for to geeks. have people brewing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, so especially nothing, geeks brewing. Yeah. yeah, nothing could have possibly measured up. But that that moment you're talking about with Batman and Cap in that book just lent into that because that. Right up there with Superman Thor, Batman Captain America was a fight that everybody wanted to see. And when you don't get it, I in particular felt fucking robbed. I was like, God damn it. Well, because, well, you know, Perez had had those great pages that we saw and were teased with mm-hmm. back in the original project that showed Batman being knocked off a building or something by Cap Shield. So it lent into this idea that those two characters were going to face each other and there was going to be a tussle. And with there ne- you know, not being one, it just, I don't know, it, it, it was a great disappointment. You disappoint me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so wrapping it all up, what do we got? Um, I'm all for this team-up. I thought it was a good idea. I thought it was executed beautifully. You know, nothing... Spec- you know what I like about this? Is if this was done nowadays, somebody would have to die. Somebody would have to get their eye gouged out. Something would have to be, like, forever altered, you know. And this one, hey, everybody meets, they all beat each other up, beat each other up, then they beat up the bad guys, and, and it's all done. And it's a fun comic book to read, you know. It's fun to see how they put everything together without having to make it into some sort of thing of like, yes, it was wonderful we got Luther and the octopus, but, you know, the world's going to miss the continent of Asia, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Things will never be the same after today. I agree. I'm of the opinion that uh, if you were a fan of Spider-Man and bought this, you got a really good sense of who Superman was. And if you were a person that only read Superman or the DC yeah. books, and you got you would see where, what Spider Man's all about, right? Uh, you know, I, I unfortunately, if you would continue, if you were the Spider Man fan that continued to collect Superman, you'd have to wait another year or two. No, no, I'm wrong. I'm completely wrong because this is around the time that they had that 
three-part storyline where Superman was Superman for an issue and then Clark Kent for another issue and then fight fought all of his rogues at once. Mm-hmm. So this would have been a great time to cross over into Superman. And pretty much the same way with, with Spider-Man. This was 76. Spider-Man, you know, <laughs> I've read like various issues of Spider-Man from this era. And it always seems like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Len Wein or if it's Roy Thomas or if it's Marv Wolfman. They all have their own particular subplots going on, but Spider-Man is pretty consistent throughout throughout them. So this would have been a great way to introduce people to, uh, to the characters in their universes. And it was just fun. It was a lot of fun to read. I mean, we sat there and nitpicked the shit out of it, but that's the point of this show. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be a really short show instead of a really long show. <laughs> yeah, I really liked this episode issue. Didn't you guys? Yup. Yup. Yeah, absolutely. And then, he, and then they fought, and then the good guys won. All right, let's break it. It's been five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of the podcasts that are out there these days, but I won't say that. <laughs>